Does right. it? Does it smell bad back here? <laughs> it smells like rotten meat. It smells like bad deer meat. Ugh. Ugh. Oh, here we go. Ah, <laughs> got it. Ah, I see what you're doing. Do you yes. smell anything, Dale? I see what you're doing. No. No? It might be coming from uh, Mike. Yeah, it might be. <laughs> Mike, you stink today? What's wrong, Mike? <laughs> I had a freezer go out uh, about a week or two ago in my barn where I keep venison. You didn't know it? In, uh, well, I mean, I'm not in the barn every day, and I was out of town. You're so not. He knows it now. I went, in, <laughs> I went in over the weekend, and, man, it was the foulest situation. Foul, foul, mm. just bad. And so, yeah, as it would be if you've had, you know, you know, rotten meat sitting there for a week <laughs> didn't you try and take it to the dump with all of the meat in it, it and they wouldn't take it yeah. i duct taped the refrigerator up and then they said we're gonna have to take a look in that fridge you know and i'm like do we so have redneck. to <laughs> <laughs> it's the most redneck thing i've ever heard you do. so i had to take it back home and i had to actually do what i was trying to avoid and that was clean that thing out and so what? yeah oh yeah yeah <laughs> did you throw up no no. Power. I about threw up trying to get the refrigerator back in my truck, but that was just because I'm out of shape. <laughs> Exertion. Yeah. <laughs> Exertion. Yeah. I would have just taken the I would have taken the freezer down by the saplings and just dumped it. <laughs> Those saplings. Past the saplings. It, you know, past you, the listeners saplings. don't know what we're talking about here, but Mike uh, said saplings a, instead of saplings. I read what the word said. There's a ravine yeah. over there. Past the saplings. <laughs> Dump it in there. A sapling ravine. Hey, listen. I don't think I didn't think about burying uh, the, the whole thing. Yeah. Like if I could, that's what you would have done, didn't it? Bury you, it. You'd have buried the whole freezer. Mm. You, you're into burying stuff, right? It's got a refrigerated graveyard. Uh. <laughs> As they showing up to the dump with a duct taped. Closed fridge is a little suspect there, Mike. Yeah, yeah. I was as <laughs> I was driving back after my rejection. I thought, you know. I wonder what they really thought was in it. Like it's like <laughs> yeah. a dead body or something. Didn't you know, smell good. Yeah, yeah they're uh, probably like, hmm. It was gross. Yeah. Should we right, start we the go. show? <laughs> Let's start the show. Hey, everybody. It's Dale Jr. back again for another episode of the Dale Jr. Download with my co-host, Mike Davis. How you doing, Mike? Doing great, bud. We're here uh, live from the Bojangle studio, and uh, Matthew's here. Hannah's here. It's going to be a great show, and I've got a great guest for you guys today. I'm really excited about this. Doug Yates and uh, Doug you know, Yates Racing Engines, they've created power in this sport and race winning cars for many decades. His dad, Robert Yates, extremely famous, Hall of Famer. Doug will soon probably be a Hall of Famer as well. And um, I learned, uh, you know, through the notes and, and studying for, for this episode that um, he has, you know, his history in this sport, where he sort of, you know, where he was hanging out when he was little and so forth are some pretty cool places. Oh, yeah. So uh, I can't wait to get him here at the table and talk about his experiences, and there's just a lot there, um, and we're lucky to have him as a guest, and I think people are going to really enjoy this. So uh, hopefully we'll talk about some ingenuity, too, because I know that, you know, even if it isn't, you know, things that he might have done to his own engines, I'm sure being in the, you know, engine department and in the engine business in racing, he has heard some very creative stories about how guys were making power over the years. Um, that's always fun with our shows when we talk about that ingenuity. But, um, yeah, let's get right to it. we got a big announcement today. We do. Should we, we di- do. Should we dive right into that? Do you want to get into the announcement? Would y'all like to get into the announcement? This is a big announcement. It is. All right. All right. Go ahead. I'll let you do the honors. Well, there's a lot to unpack in today's show, but right out right out of the gate, I wanted to let everybody know that I've, I've got a children's book that's coming out. Look at you. You heard that correctly. <laughs> 
me and and Mike, my wife. I mean, there's been a lot of people involved in creating this book, but um, it's called Buster's Trip to Victory Lane, and you can pre-order it now. That's right. right. You, you start pre-ordering today. You go to DaleJr.com slash Buster. That's right. DaleJr.com slash Buster. That's going to take you to a place where you can order this book, um, Becoming a Dad. We wrote a book uh, with McGee about my concussions and my, you know, the, the wrapping my career up and all that and everything that went on, right? We had a great experience with the publisher and made some great relationships. And when I became a father, they asked me, hey, man, would you be interested in, interested in doing a children's book? I never would have thought that I would want to do that. But being a dad, you accumulate piles and piles of books, right? <laughs> and while reading some of these books, now I'm not a, a three-year-old or a five-year-old, but some of them are really good. And some of them, the kids really connect to and just like, we got one book. What is it called? The Moon Book. Good Night Moon. Good Night Moon. That's right. Both my little girls carry that damn thing around. I yeah. see it every day. Mine did too. Every day. And so they connect to certain ones and some of them are, they could care less. They just, they don't even know they're there. Yeah. And I'm just kind of, uh, I was just kind of interested in that a little bit, but I, Wanted to try to see if I could create a story or create a book that would be interesting or that would connect to kids, right? Yeah. And we we were given an opportunity, and we had uh, I had some good personal involvement in helping craft the story, uh, selecting the artist, uh, what the cars look like, and selecting their names, the characters. Characters. Yeah. Uh, we changed a lot of the story. There's a lot of little Easter eggs in the story of Buster's trip to Victory Lane, and uh, for example. As you'll see on the cover of the book, it says on the side of Buster's car, Punchy Motorsports. That's the team that Buster drives for. Punchy is a nod to an old friend of mine who recently passed away, and I thought that'd be a cool way to honor him. But uh, there's some other uh, characters' names and so forth that I think people will uh, make a connection to. But anyways, uh, I'm excited. It's a good story. I think I hope that kids will enjoy it. We uh, possibly, if you know, if this goes well, we'll continue to do more. Well, there's a, it's a two book deal, so okay. we do have a second book that's going to be coming out uh, as a sequel to this. Yeah, and so we're already talking about uh, what that you know storyline itself might be like. That's so right. yeah, we started pitching some ideas to each other last night. So we're excited about this. Uh, I can't wait for uh, parents to uh, to to get a hold of a copy and and see what their kids' reactions are. And we'll see whether we got a book that kids are connected to. If you don't mind, Matthew, you read a manuscript of this because you know I, you and I were so closely yeah. to the book that you don't ever know if the story is actually resonating yes. with kids, right? Like yes. I think you probably read it to your kids. Mine were a little older, uh, so like you didn't. They're not a good read. But Matthew, you read it to Hudson, yes, and it's because it is a racing book. It's yes. a racing kids book, and so Matthew, you loved it, right? Yeah, I mean, well, more importantly, Hudson loved it. So, right. you know, he's he's six now, but I think he was five at the time uh, that he read it. And it was just going through the manuscript mode. And he's uh, he's probably like me. He's a little picky on some of his racing content. Yes. And it seemed he enjoyed it. You know, I, I took it as like I didn't want to enjoy it myself. I wanted to read it to him and see if he'd enjoy it. And to me, that was the test. Yeah, we changed. A, a, you know, we, we went back and forth with a lot of the details if you will uh you the did racing yeah the racing <laughs> speak yeah and um you know there's a balance between trying to make sure that that is 
realistic, but also it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be, it can be pretty, you know, it's got to connect to a five-year-old, right? right. Not, it doesn't not, have to be so literal. It doesn't have to make sense to us. Yeah, right. And, and, and uh, but anyways, it, it's a neat challenge, I think, to try to, I guess, put yourself in, in their shoes yeah. of a child's mind and predict, I guess, whether you're making the right choices or not. And anyways, we, you know, it was fun. We, you know, we went through this big, long, you know, we had a lot of artists to really choose from and there were some really, really great ones, but we kind of picked the one that we felt like we liked the best. And, uh, I mean, just Buster himself. His, yeah. Hold that book up. So Buster, I love the way that Buster looks. Yeah. Buster himself. Mm-hmm. Now this car is designed or created with a nod, a very heavy nod to uh, a dirt car that Robert G owned, my grandfather, and uh, we had uh, we had a little diecast model of that car on the desk for a while. Um, but um, so yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of little uh, things in the book that are that, that connect to my history, my past, my friendships with uh, people, other racers. Anyways, yeah. Congrats, man. That's Thanks. that's awesome. Yeah. DaleJr.com/slash/Buster. That's where you can go pre-order this book. Um, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. I think you guys will enjoy it, and your kids will too. All right. Well, I thought that's the part of the open segment. I feel like we actually need to talk about that. Um, we went to the fans last week and asked them for their suggestions on what the name of the open segment would be. Did you did you see any out there that you liked? My, uh, I think my favorite one was. Um, hmm. There were some good ones. Yeah, I can't. I, I don't see it on here. Um, oh no, no, no! Remember, remember, we were doing the Ask Junior last week, and there was one that jumped right out into the front. Oh, in the was Ask it Junior, wide do you open? remember that? What was yeah, it? there was wide open. There wide was dirty open. air. Dirty air. Dirty air. So, I saw dirty air on Twitter, and I liked it. I like yeah. dirty air a lot. As annoying as dirty air is, we don't want to. <laughs> we don't want to. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's really appropriate for this segment. Yeah, yeah. who knows. Put it all out there. On I like it. Yeah, if anybody disagrees with our open takes, uh, we can just tell them it is called Dirty Air. <laughs> right. It's not supposed to be, yeah. you know, fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, I but like anyhow, Dirty Air. Yeah. Go ahead, Hannah. No, I was going to say, that was we had a lot of good ones people put in. There was sidetracked, firing off, hot takes, the rundown, wide open. I mean, people all week long were sending them in. But I agree. I feel like Dirty Air just uh, I like, fits the ambiance of I, this group. <laughs> I like Dirty Air a lot. I think the the thing the next thing that clicks in my mind is do do we go uh, do we look out into the into the landscape or the lay of the land in podcasting and journalist journalistic work in the industry and make sure we're not copying someone else. Is there another Dirty Air out there? We don't. There used we to don't, be. We don't want to cringe on somebody else's idea or somebody else's project. Um, you, right? You have to cover your bases. I used to be on a podcast called the Dirty Air Podcast. Yeah. But that was a long time ago. Well, that's a terrible name for a podcast. <laughs> Why would you name? We're not going to name the open segment "The Dirty Air." Is it called? Was it called "The Dirty Air"? It's called "The Dirty Air Podcast." <laughs> that's terrible. Yeah. Why? Of, you of just, course it is. Why would you put the word? Of, the? of course it is. Why would you put "the" before? Who it? came yeah. up with the name? Was it you? Um, absolutely not. <laughs> because if I came up with it, you know, Dale would poo, poo well, all we're over. We're just it. sitting here waiting. We're like, just on, wait. Say you I know he's sitting there smirking. Say you came up with it. Smirking. <laughs> I'm with you. Smirking. We're ready. Just like our Go text pounce. messages last night. I wanted to eggplant you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. So, uh, listen. so the open the new name for the open segment is going to be called the dirty the dirty air. The dirty air. The, <laughs> but we shouldn't Ohio State this. Shit. No the the dirty, the dirty air. air. The dirty air now segment. Time for the dirty air segment. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> Why wouldn't they name the podcast just Dirty Air? Well, there was one called Dirty Air, but it, uh, NASCAR used to do a podcast called Dirty Air, yeah. and it was funny because... Is that the one? Yeah. Well, uh, oh, you, that's we the one did you the were Dirty on? Air podcast, and oh, then they started a little sector of it called Dirty Air, and they, I think they only did like two, three episodes or something, and it didn't work. Right. And honestly, I don't feel so bad doing it this way because I remember... Kate Davis worked at NASCAR for the, at the time, and yes. she called me and she goes, "Listen, we're going to do a podcast called Dirty Air. If you think that that's sort of playing off of your Dirty Mo Media, you would be correct. That's what we're doing. We're trying to basically, you know, ride in your wake and do this." So I said, "Well, at least they're honest, right?" But it didn't really last, and it didn't really matter. I mean, like, I, you know, I'm a fan of podcasts, so I didn't get worked up over it. But well, if that's the only thing that would conflict, I don't think that would be a problem. Yeah, let's just make sure. But I think Dirty Air's uh, the, the what's leader. your P two? Do you have a P two? Um, I think there's probably the rundown is nice, but I think uh, I don't think any of, any of those are my P two. Got you. <laughs> Open segment is yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna. I, I think hot laps might be second. Yeah. Time for some hot laps. <laughs> okay. Not a fan. It's okay. He's Slide. just hoping you were gonna say hot takes. It slides. No, it, I'm done with hot takes now. <laughs> it slides out of my top. So I think five of pancakes. If Matthew didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to go the opposite. I need Matthew to like it. No, you don't. Mm. Oh, boy. You know, Matthew likes to put periods after a word, so it would be like the period, dirty, period, air, period, segment, period. Mm. That's Why do I do that? You do it all the time. Even like your tweets will do it. That's when you're like, I really mean this. Yes. This is important. Most people capitalize the things, but it's fine. This is awesome. Well, I capitalized a lot of things before, and then I got ragged on for that. Ah. So I've, I've, Track record here. I'm less. I got picked on caps. one time for putting too many exclamation points in my really? emails. Yeah, like I guess I got into the habit of like every sentence ended with like four or five <laughs> exclamation points. Yeah, that's really enthusiastic. I'm so happy. <laughs> that's over the top. I did. It's annoying. Yeah. Oh, didn't yeah. you guys used to put the mood too? Didn't you tell me one time you'd put like that's that was Mike. in emails. That was in emails because like you know there was a time. <laughs> that's funny. There was a time when. I don't know. I guess we were all on edge. It was that time of year where we're just like all like, you know, at each other. And so like every email that you and I would write back forth to each other, we would assume the absolute worst tone. Yeah. Like it could just be like, hey, uh, see you here in a little bit. And you'd be like, what's your problem? What is he trying to say? I'm not going to be on time. (laughs) And so I said, I swear, (laughs) I'm going to start putting my mood or the tone of the email in all caps at the top of email. So he knows like jovial. Yeah. Hey, see you in a little while. Or, you know, uh, you know, serious. Yeah. You know, just so we are all clear on what the tone of the email is supposed to be. So me and Kelly would were doing that in text message. We'd have we would have just a very quick brief back and forth. Hey, what's up? Not much. Okay. Man, you're short. What's wrong? Nothing. Well, you well, your your answer's just short and brief. And am I annoying you by texting you? No. No, you're not annoying me. Well, all right, I'll just go back in my hole. Right. And I'm like, and so Kelly's like, just use emojis in your, in every, like, not in every text, but like Kelly's like, it really helps when you use emojis. So I know that you're not, a, you know, you're in the, you know, whatever mood you're in. So I always like, I'll type a text to her. And right before I hit send, I go, oh, oh, got to put a smiley face. <laughs> Good. Okay, send. You were sending cryptic texts this weekend. Like, Morning, like hey, I'm um, afternoon. No, so I was given, I was testing Mike. So the other <laughs> <What>? day, <clears throat> you're yeah. testing me. The other day, Mike goes to do this commencement speech, right? And I think we can all say that we're, we're so we're so excited for Mike. 
wanting him to have a great experience. He's wanting, you know, he's he's proud of he's proud of Georgia Southern, and he's going back to, you know, it's it's a big deal, right? So after he was done, I sent a message to him, and I was like, "Hey, man, how'd it go?" And you know, several hours later, he's busy. It's long, you know. <laughs> several hours later, I'm like, "Look, man, just let me know how it went. I'd take one word response. No big deal." And he laughed and said, "Good." So this weekend, I thought I'm gonna send him a good morning text <laughs> like when i get up so i sent a text that just said good morning he didn't respond so i waited till later in the day and i sent a text afternoon <laughs> and he's like what's up and i'm like nothing just Checking saying in. hey he's like okay okay so what's so cryptic i'm on the beach i'm hanging out i'm having a good vacation with my family i was uh dealing with that little freezer problem that i had with the spoiled <laughs> meat that's what i was doing and i also about set a, 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 a property on fire, and I almost got electrocuted. Those are shareable things that I would what have the? thought well, would be interesting. Th- that's why I wasn't immediately responsive. <laughs> that would have been a good response to afternoon. Hold on. I, I was, almost set well, property on fire. Yeah. I, got, <laughs> I got a bunch of bad meat and a fire to put out. <laughs> that, that, Literally. That would have been true. Yeah. Huh. But, I mean, look, I'm not, you know, it was my problem. Context, please. I was installing a microwave. Oh. We had this condo that we, we rent out, and I was installing a microwave, uh, which is one of those hanging microwaves, you know, like beneath the cabinet on the wall. You know what I'm saying? And uh, I was drilling a hole in the wall, and I hit a wire. I hit the wire from the stove, and it shot sparks out the hole and started smoking. And I thought, this whole thing's about to go up. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it smell, you smell burning. I don't know if there's a fire behind the wall. I'm about to find out. Um, you know, I go kill all, you know, I kill every breaker there is, right? Like just killing it all. And, and it's like, um, yeah, that was a big deal. It, it was, uh, and then when the electrician came out, they're like, you are lucky. Matthew sent us all a text. What he sent? Good segment, guys. With an, ex- <laughs> with an exclamation he's point. He's happy. Oh. Did he really? And a smiley face. <laughs> now, you just lectured him last week about the group text stuff during the show, Oh, right? this was on the proper group, te- group text. I made sure. Okay. I, I get a I get a gold star at the top of my uh, homework today. So I'm sitting here talking about how I almost died, and you're sitting there texting about how <laughs> no, this is a great like... segment. More of this, guys. More of this. I mean, come on. Where's the compassion? It's encouragement. I had meat spoiling and my and apartments about to go burning fire. Yeah. My goal. My goal. My point. My my reason for the text messages to Mike. My good morning and good afternoon text messages is I'm going to. Put a concert. I'm going to put in an, uh, an effort to become one of the people that Mike texts regularly with, and I'm going to try to work to get to the point to where, when I text Mike, "Hey, what's up?" He's going to op- he's going to volunteer everything that's going on in his day. <laughs> I will be the type of person that he will go. Oh man, uh, my fr- my freezer went out, man. I took it to the dump. They wouldn't take it. Damn. And we're gonna have a conversation. Two things. One, I already mm-hmm. am that to you. No. And you're that to me. Yes. What? You, I can promise you, there's not anybody on the planet that I text more with than you. Really? Uh, not even my wife. 
Wow. Whoa. Secondly, and we secondly, don't text secondly, much. Secondly, that's that ought to tell you something. What's I, I'm the not, deal? I'm not in the text. Secondly, you're not exactly innocent in all this either. What am you I? You go listen. You say how'd it go? I find like yeah, it went great. Here's stuff. You said well maybe I can see a video of your speech, and I'm like well here's a link. I watched, I watched it, but you didn't reply. So I send you the link to my speech. Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So now he was I'm sleeping. like, he hate. I mean, because obviously they introduced me. Like my whole career is basically the way I work for you. I mean, I'm not there without this. You know, my story with you and all that stuff. So it's like, I'm like, man, he ain't replying. He hated it. What? Like I, I've done something wrong. Maybe I said Are something you wrong. Uh, of course. Did y'all watch it? Mike's commitment yeah. commencement speech. His commitment. So <laughs> <my> commitment speech. <laughs> We're committing. It's on him. the YouTube. Right? Yeah, yeah. You, it, it's on the YouTube. Can you go to is it the Georgia? YouTube? Yeah, it's on the YouTube. <laughs> the dirty YouTube. Um, is it's it so Georgia much. Southern's handle? I, I honestly, I don't, don't know the know. answer to that. Uh, yeah, somebody like sent me the minute, link. It's like eighteen yeah. minutes in, so, and it's uh, it's great. It's you did great. You, you did great. Did you like it? Yes, I thought. I saw it. your teeth from the wide shot. It was incredible. <laughs> It was hot up there, so yeah. Yeah. The Every, everything was. You uh, saw blowing. his teeth in the wide shot. Yeah, it was, I knew could, it was Mike up there. <laughs> the only way you could get them all in there. <laughs> all right. By the way, by the way, Dustin what just the? texted me with an emoji, uh, and uh, our behind the scenes, our camera guy here, and said that Mike could have put his deer meat if he burnt the uh, the house down. He could have put the fridge in there to burn. That's true. That's that's a good point. Dustin. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, listen. Um, in all seriousness, though, uh, like that was like the honor of a lifetime for me to go do that thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad you liked the speech. And I yep. was just happy for you because I think that um, I know how proud you are from uh, about you know that school and what it means to your life, and to have them want you to come do that. I mean, and you went up there and you 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 knocked it out of the park. Yeah, wasn't had, and then you you uh, spent. Like what the rest of the day and afternoon and evening, just uh, enjoying yourself and being around that environment, you know, yeah. must have been. Oh, uh-huh. with all professors of mine from back right. in 1996. Did you go to the what was the place you said you were going to meet them all at? El Sombrero. El Sombrero. Did yeah. you go? Yeah. Did you Did you see some graduates? Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. That was the thing. It's funny because you guys know my wife. I, this is real quick. I you know hey, this isn't a racing show. And so we we uh, you know my wife like she's very thrifty with her with money and like you know she's very you know she manages the finances very well and so i end the speech by saying if uh i'll see you at el sombrero tonight and if i do drinks are on me and i sit down and i'm like what the heck did i just say and my phone starts buzzing immediately and i'm like there she is yeah she's wondering what did you just do and how many people did you just promise buying drinks for and I just, when I finally talked to her, I'm like, I was on stage for another two hours because they had to still hand out all the diplomas and all that My stuff, goodness. right? That takes a long time. And so uh, when I talked to her, she goes, what was that all about? And I said, I don't know. It wasn't in, the, it wasn't in my speech. It was like this <laughs> out-of-body experience. Like I wanted to just, I wanted to end on a high note, but I was like, graduates, I'm proud of you. We love you. But nobody was really reacting. So I'm like, keep going. Beers on me, boys. Yeah. And they were like, yeah. <laughs> real, real crowd pleaser. Yeah. All right. So how many did you have to buy? People are going to want to know. Well, there's four El Sombreros. I went to the only one that mattered to me, which is the one that I think they least go to now. So that was, <laughs> that, that was, there was that. I probably bought about 
six or seven big beers. And the, the, El Sombrero is known for having these gigantic mm. beer glasses, right? And that was what we went to college on. I majored in big beer um, but in Georgia Southern. And so that's what, either these big margaritas or big beers. And so I, I bought six or seven, which mm. was fine. What are you going to do? I was proud of them. I was in a moment, too. I would have, there ain't no telling what I was going to spend money on. And I, I was in a moment of weakness. So, well, We completely derailed that. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else you all want to talk about? We should probably maybe talk about Kansas. Kansas you, good. Do you want to? Yeah. Sure. I mean, yeah, I, I, don't have, uh, I don't have a lot about it. But, I mean, it's a great race. I thought the, watching I could ride on the roof cam or the in-car cam of Kurt's car trying to watch him pass Kyle Larson at the end for the rest of the race. There was no need to cut away to any other camera. Every time they left that in-car camera of trying to watch him try to work, get to the left quarter panel, I'm like, man, go back in there. That was awesome. Um, I love that. I love that, you know, I guess one thing that I, I was happy about is, you know, that the, they can pass. You know, they can get up to the back of each other, and they can – I know that there is dirty air, but I know that it's not perfect, but – it, you know, in, in other configurations, recent configurations that we've had over the last decade, uh, the the five car would have just been able to block with the spoiler and the and 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 take away the air off of Kurt's car, and and he wins the race. Especially at that place right there, it's so hard to pass. And you could watch Kurt work and work and work and work, and finally, he knew how to get to the five car and disrupt the five car's balance because Kyle Larson's talked talked about that. He kept bouncing off the wall, and it's really the air off of the car beside him actually sends his car up the racetrack and gets him tight. And so uh, Kurt was doing that, and and that was helping Kurt allow uh, you know be able to make the pass he needed to make. And I was just really happy about that. I think this car, the new next gen car, has performed so well at the mile and a halfs, uh, better than I think any of us could have anticipated. Uh, we're all uh, worried sick about what that means for the short tracks after the performance we saw at Martinsville. But um, otherwise, I think at the mile and a half, road courses, this is uh, it's going to be a fun year uh, to be in the booth. So that would have been a great race to call that, that final end. I thought Jamie McMurray did a great job in the booth. He's a good balance for, for uh, Clint. Um, and uh, I still I, I still you know always miss the crew chief strategy knowledge but man when it comes down to when it comes down to a battle like we saw at the end of the race all I want to hear is from the drivers and I thought those guys delivered um so uh pretty amazing to see Kurt keep winning right you know you just just uh this he's been in the sport I think the longest of any other driver you know he of the, all the vets I think he's been around the longest the most years and so, uh, I think he's the last, maybe the last driver that was competed against my dad. I think he is. So, um, and he's had some difficult weeks, crashed a lot over the last several three or four races. Guy goes out there and, and can still get the job done. Drove a great race. Uh, I know Denny and them guys are probably thrilled with the success of their team. And, and you know, Denny's pretty uh, open and honest about the ebb and flow of emotions in terms of performance. When he when they're down, he's he he comes to the media and he's open about it and frustrated about it. So uh, pretty pretty interesting watching that team develop and carve out their identity. I thought it was just a good race. Kansas is a great racetrack. Good barbecue out there. It's a great trip. Uh, I like every, I like most everything about it. 
I was gonna say I saw a cool stat that said Kurt Busch has now won a cup race in six different numbers for five different teams and four different manufacturers. Yeah. Pretty impressive. So yeah, I know we do. You know, you, there's a lot of what ifs out there, but you have to wonder: had Kurt matured or had the ability to to weather and withstand all of the things coming at him when he won that championship at such a young age in just a few years into the sport. Uh, I, I wonder, had he been able to maintain a stable situation professionally, you know, he'd be three, four, five-time champion. I don't know. It, it, I think he knows that the possibilities on that are endless. Um, he has a special talent uh, that a lot of – I said it on uh, social media. I, he has this ability that a lot of guys don't have. There's great race car drivers – sprinkled throughout the history of the sport and a great race car driver can take any race car and get everything out of it when you when a crew chief or owner puts a car on the racetrack all he wants his driver to do is make that car go as fast as that car can go and all the great race car drivers that's what they do and that's why they're great but only a very few can take a team over a period of time, six months, a year, two years, whatever, however long they're there, and progressively improve that, that, that team. Now, you would think if it just happens once, well, what was, was, it the, was it the driver? Maybe it was a crew chief. Maybe it was a couple personnel changes or an engineer they hired that made this thing faster. But Kurt has done this over and over, and it's pretty impressive. I don't know, you know, I think he apparently gives great feedback. Apparently his feedback is really detailed. Um, but there's other things I think that he must be doing uh, during the week that we're not privy to. Conversations he's having with his crew chiefs and engineers, his owner, about how to get better. And time and time again, he has been involved in teams that tend to always improve yeah, I think I think that's a it's a rare quality and a, and a special one. I, I I wish I could name some of the, some of the other drivers that I think have that ability, but uh, it's a it's a it's a small group. Hey, download listeners, supervising producer Andrew Curlin here. Are supply chain issues still disrupting operations? Well, let me tell you, Graybar has you covered. They are the leader in distribution of electrical, communications, data networking, and industrial products. Professionals across the country rely on Graybar's nationwide logistics network to get them what they need, when and where they need it, and within budget. That's right, and they're operating with one clear mission, to serve as the vital link in the supply chain, adding value for customers and suppliers with innovative solutions and services. Let me tell you, here's what makes them different, is you know being able to effectively navigate supply chains to get products on site and on time is so crucial these days, and Graybar's nationwide logistics network is a game changer in keeping projects on task. So when you need a hand powering, connecting, or maintaining your operations, join thousands of professionals who rely on Graybar to help keep them up and running. Check out Graybar. Visit graybar.com to start an order today. Mike, I'm really excited to have Ally. As a partner here at Dirty Mo Media, and uh, they're they're helping us uh, bring in some pretty incredible guests each week. Uh, it's important to have allies in your career, in your life, uh, professionally, personally. And um, anyways, we got Doug Yates as a guest on the show this week. Uh, it's going to be pretty awesome to be able to 
hear his story. I didn't know that Doug. Uh, I mean, I guess I should have known. I, you know, but Doug, looking Robert Yates, his dad's life and the teams that he was involved in, Doug was a fly on the wall in a lot of these awesome situations. And I can't wait to get him in here and and hear about these stories. And listen, this is one of those guests where you came to us and said, this is somebody that I want. And, uh, you know, I love it. As we started researching, man, there's a lot of things that we should have known, but we don't know. Can't wait to talk to him about that. And also there's some stuff that I don't even know if he's willing to talk about, but he's involved in stuff that's not just racing related. And I'm telling you, like, this is the best at what he does. This guy is legit, man. So, yeah, I can't wait. Let's just get him on in here. Doug Yates on the Dell Jr. Download. It's like, what should I wear? And she's like, really? Yeah. yeah. So how are you? Good. Yeah, thank you for where'd having you, me on. Where'd you come from? Uh, I was across the street. Yeah. yeah so well, are you over there often? Uh, I'm always at the uh, shop on Lakeside. Okay. On Lakeside there. You're that, that, so you spend most of your time still yeah. in Mooresville? Oh, yeah. Yeah, at our original engine shop. I mean, that's where I, I spend most days when, I'm, when I can in the engine dyno. Your original engine shop. Right. What do you mean by that? Well, so when we, well, the original shop was downtown Charlotte, as you know, mm-hmm. yeah, going towards the airport off Roswell's Ferry Road, pretty rough, mm-hmm. pretty rough place. We moved up here in 2003, and so that's where I'm. What's happening over there? So we built all the engines for all the Ford Cup and Xfinity teams over there. Every single Ford? Yeah, yeah. Cup and Xfinity? Yeah, so when we put our program together with Jack in the end of 2003, we started, you know, we did all of them okay. from that point on. So do can we talk about the boat? Yeah. All right. So, um, well, I'll tell you. So, uh, full disclosure, I knew his dad, you know, I knew his dad, talked to his dad when I'd seen him, super, super, super nice guy. But me and Doug never really talked a lot. And for whatever reason, right, right we know a lot right. of the same people, and uh, but we never really spent much time around each other. So I, don't, I didn't know. That's more him than you, just so yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's the way he would be with everybody. My yeah. guys asked me, he said, have you ever, you think Junior will ever ask you to be on this show? I said, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure. You know, it's, maybe it's a Chevrolet Ford thing. No. I, I don't know. I th- that, so <laughs> I'm just shocked. So, um, but anyways, um, I think this is how this happened. So he has some ownership of a boat, and the Tart thought it would be great for the NBC booth and wives to go on a trip together and spend some time around each other. And so we chartered. His boat. So the one just from a few weeks ago? Yes. And oh, so, wow. This is recent. And yeah. s- through the whole, through, through, throughout the whole trip, they're going on and on about Doug. And they're like, man, you know, you, you, you'd be surprised. And so every time I talk to Clark, 
uh, Jeff, Jeff Clark. Clark, who used yep. to – Jeff worked for Doug on Robert Yates race teams and uh, eventually came and worked on the number eight car for, for many years, Jack Mann and uh, Gas Cam Mann at some points and just a all-around great guy. And he's always – telling him and Doug are very close, and he's always like, man, you guys are more similar than you think, and you should really talk to him. He's just awesome. And so I thought, yeah, i got to get him on the show. That's, uh, that's how we do it. That's how, we, that's how I get to know you. I mean, if you're going to be on his boat, right? Yeah. Well, I've got some good stories about your dad because your dad had a boat, yeah. like a really nice boat. My dad had a little boat, but he loved it. You know, he yeah. loved doing that. But we were at a place called Chub Key last year, and they were telling me a story about Dale Earnhardt Sr. being there on his boat. He loved coming down there, going fishing, brought Danny Lawrence, all the guys on the crew down there went fishing all the time. And they were telling me this one story. I guess Larry Mack had him testing late, so he couldn't get in there. So there's no lights on the railway there. But he, but he wanted to get in there. So everybody on the island parked their car and turned their, uh, you know, their headlights on. Here comes your dad in. And then Alan Jackson picked him up on his golf cart. Him and Alan Jackson hang out all weekend. Good so, I mean, that's pretty cool <laughs> stuff right there. And the guys down at Chubb were telling me all those stories. So I was thinking about you. Dang. How many cars does it take to light up a <laughs> runway? Yeah, that sounds like some <laughs> – <laughs> that sounds like some of the smuggling things that were happening right. out here. Are you sure that wasn't Gary yeah. Ballou? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was the coolest. I mean, your dad is the baddest guy I've ever seen around. You know, I was there kind of – I started my career in 1990 when I graduated college, right? And your yeah. dad was already the intimidator, right? Yeah. And so I was there as an engine tuner, new guy, you know, watching your dad come up. And I was around him. And my dad loved your dad. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, he absolutely thought the world. They they went back dirt racing back in the, at Metroline and all that stuff. My dad had a dirt car. And um, but he loved him. But I wasn't scared of your dad. So 1990, Southern 500. Yeah, I'm on the pit crew, like holding the signboard and all that stuff. And so old backstretch bathrooms. I'm in the bathroom, you know, getting ready for the race, you know, relieving myself before the race. Your dad walks in and says, you boys ready? I thought it was God talking. <laughs> I, I was shaking. At the urinal. <laughs> yeah, at the urinal. And he says, you better be, or something like that. I mean, that's what I heard, oh, right? Geez. He went out and just just wore us out. But uh, he's a man. I know your dad's history. I know the teams he was with. You know, he's going to be prevalent in this conversation. But I want to know about, you know, your experiences, especially as a very, very young, young boy. You were privy to having – experienced a lot of things around this sport with a lot of really really cool characters that didn't really click in my head you, i guess i didn't know anything about the metrolina car so like tell me your first sort of memories growing up uh around racing what kind of race cars are we talking about where were you spending your time at i, I guess you know my earliest memories kind of around you know probably six seven years old right but uh for you when did it all kind of start clicking yeah so you know, my dad was at Holman and Moody when I was born in 67. And shortly thereafter, about three years after that, uh, Ford pulled out of racing. And my dad had built a race winning engine for Junior Johnson. So he kind of got to know Junior. So Junior said, hey, Robert, I want you to come up here and run my engine shop. So my dad was driving back and forth, back and forth. And finally, we'd moved up there, right, about a mile and a half down the street from Junior's shop. And I was about four or five years old back then. And he would, you know, my dad would work. 24-7. I mean, it, you know how it was yeah. back then. I mean, he just worked all the time. And so he'd come home for dinner and take me back to work with him. That's the only time I got to hang out with him. And and I have a cot there, and he'd have me sort nuts and bolts or whatever. And, um, you know, Junior would come in in the middle of the night from coon hunting and, you know, pat my dad on the back said, boy, we're going to go win this race. And, you know, so just hanging around Junior Johnson. 
and uh, being right there in the street. And then on Saturdays, we would go down to the house and Flossie would cook breakfast, you know, country ham biscuits for everybody every Saturday morning. So my goal or what I thought like normal life was, is being a car owner and having the shop, you live right next to your shop. You know, that's what I did, but that's what I thought it was. But my very first memory of the race was going to North Wilkesboro. My mom took me uh, to qualifying there. And uh, I know you love North Wilkesboro, so this is a cool story. So here we go. You know, my dad's down there obviously working. And so we sit on the front row of the concrete bleachers, still there, and um, we're sitting there watching qualifying and chicken bones, beer cans. I'm like, wow, this is this is it. This is racing. <laughs> this is what it's about. But uh, just hanging out with him um, uh, when I could. Uh, he would, you know, he worked all the time, but in the wintertime, he liked to ride, like, motorcycles, dirt bikes and stuff. And he would put me on the back, and we'd ride up through the holler and, and do stuff like that. I think he just needed ballast, you know, so he'd put me <laughs> on there. <laughs> but uh, but it just, you know, growing up around Junior and, and all the all those guys that were there. Um, and then Bobby Allison was his driver. So right away, Bobby Allison was my hero. This I mean, is I, the number 12 Coke car. Number 12 Coke car. 1972, they won 10 races, finished second 12 times. And my dad, as he would tell, blew up the rest of them, finished second to Richard Petty in the points. But um, him and Bobby had a great connection. And um, later, um, when my dad was struggling with cancer, the very last year we had a birthday party uh, for him at the shop, and Bobby was there. And Bobby was told the story, and I never heard this. He said that Junior wouldn't talk to him. He said that and Herb wouldn't talk to him, but my dad would talk to him. So my dad and him got close. But if they wanted to redo his contract, they went through my dad to go get his <laughs> contract. Done. That's just the way Junior was. Yeah. You know? So I've read some books about Junior, and um, yeah, I know Junior was – the boss, right? You didn't. He was the one that you called the shots. If he said come down pit road, Daryl Walter, whoever it was, they better get their tail down pit road. Right. And I, right in the middle, Kale won three championships in a row with, uh, with Junior Johnson in seventy six, seventy seven, and seventy eight. And right in the middle of all that, they're having, they're dominating the sport fast. Kale didn't do something, or Kale said something about the car, and Junior, in quotes, in the media after the race, is like. He can go drive somebody else's car. <laughs> <laughs> he can talk. He he, he gonna stop talking about my car like that and go. That's the way he was. That's the way he was, and he he was a you know he was the guy, right? He yeah. was a legend, and um, it was his way or the highway. And when my dad left there, you know, seventy four, seventy five, by we lived there for four years, and my mom finally looked at my dad and said, "Look, here's the deal. You can live here as, and work here as long as you want. I'm going back to Charlotte." where I'm from. And so it didn't take long for him to, to leave. But when he left, Junior never talked to him from that moment until the end of his career. Man. Wait, out of spite? That's the way you were with him or against him. Mm. And that's the way kind of I grew up that way too a little bit. And like when Jeff Clark, my best friend, he was on our team. But when he left to go work Rusty and then you, mm. we didn't talk for a long time because that's – you know, my dad raised me really tough, and I, I know your dad did too. And I think he did that because he knew how hard this is, you know, har how hard it is to, yeah. to to have a place here in this sport and, and earn it. But um, but that's the way Junior was, man. You were with him or against him. He never talked to him. And Junior was my dad's hero. Even through all that, he really, really looked up to him. And later, after my dad retired, after a 2007 season, he, he got a farm up there, a ranch up in North Wilkesboro, 600 acres, and um, had a steel on it. It was really cool. <laughs> and and uh, he, but that was kind of because he had such fond memories of living there and and uh, all those things. And and Junior was one of his heroes. So they figured they 
eventually got to communicating? Well, they, they did talk, you know. I mean, they after after my dad retired and, you know, Junior would have those breakfasts where all those guys, old-timers, would come up there and tell all those racing stories and stuff. And my dad would do that with him a little bit. Yeah. And, yeah, they got past that. But there's something about when you walk in the when you walk in that garage, you know, you, you got to – you know, there's no being on both teams. You got to pick your team. <laughs> so, so, how old were you were you, when you were in Junior's shop? Like, you're talking about six, seven, eight. Yeah, five, six, seven. Okay, years old. Do you ever recall having conversations with Junior Johnson? Because it sounds like he doesn't talk to Bobby, and that's his driver. <laughs> um, you know, you're either with him or without him. I mean, for a six-year-old, I would be somewhat intimidated by this guy. I I don't know. I don't really remember talking to Junior that much, but I love Flossie. And Flossie was, we were tight. She's bringing biscuits. I mean, you're going to talk to her, right? Exactly. Are those breakfasts as legendary as they have always heard? I mean, like, I've heard about the Junior Johnson breakfasts and the biscuits and all that stuff. I mean, and that there was never, they never half asked that. Like, that was always the best thing your Wilkes County had going, right? Yeah. Is that, is that true? That's true, but I, I mean, I wouldn't take part in any of those the old timers talking in those breakfasts. But I, for for me as a kid, you know, having breakfast at Flossie's house and Junior's house, that was just like what we did on Saturday. Yeah. And now looking back, it's like, wow, that's that's cool. And and one of the things, I, my time in the sport, I just love that the time that I grew up in the sport from where it was to where it is today. I, I just think it's awesome. You experienced a lot of different layers. And I, I, my, my wife was asking me the other day, she's like, man, you're posting all these old pictures. Why are you doing that? Are you going through something? And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, no. I'm like, this is silly. But you ever watch Forrest Gump, the movie, right? And he lived the life of 10 men, right? He was in all these different places and experienced all yeah. these things. And I told Amy, I said, that, I said, I feel like my life is that way. There's been these giant chapters that were enough for one person, right, to experience in, in, in one life. And I've gotten, I've been kind of pulled and plucked and shoved into all these other spaces, right? And had, right. I think you had the same experience. Like the decades of, of change in the sport, you really yeah. got to experience. And the, the, the personalities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the personalities were bigger than life. Yeah. And, and, and you were one of those guys coming up. You just, you know, and, and, and that's what, you know, the driver is your hero. That's the person who sets the tone. Uh, your dad, you, Davey Allison, amazing guy, right? I mean, American hero. And um, it's just so cool to be around those guys. I mean, Rusty Wallace was one of those guys that – I didn't really like Rusty because we he beat us a lot, but he was if, one of those guys. If you weren't on his team, he was hard to like. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> his guys loved him. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, but, he, but, yeah, he got – and him and dad were great friends, and I always kind of – like Rusty would kind of rub me the wrong way a little bit every once in a while. Rusty spun dad at Rockingham. <laughs> They were racing for the championships. The year Rusty won the championship, and there was a wreck at Rockingham. Rusty got into Dad or spun him out or something, and Dad got clipped by somebody, ripped the whole back off his car. And I was like, damn it. And, you know, nobody spins Dad out, right? He's the one spinning everybody else out. <laughs> but uh, anyways, um, Metroline, the Metroline car, I'm curious about yeah. that because I'm, I'm, I love Metroline. I love – I never really got to experience that as a kid. It was a little bit before my time, but I'm infatuated with it. My my grandfather Robert G had a car there and all that. Yeah. So, you what do you remember about that? Well, I don't know if you don't like what I'm gonna tell you here. Okay, but uh, we're all this is a table of honesty. <laughs> you can lay so, it out there. So my dad and his best friend, a guy named David Gray, they they started this dirt car. My dad was working at home in Moody, working 100 hours a week, and somehow he found time to go race at Metrolina. It was a Camaro, and, and so they raced at Metrolina. They who drove. Dom Bumgarner, okay. this guy's name, had drove it, and um, and they they were so proud. They said that you know they're the only guy that could beat Ralph Earnhardt. Oh, and they said that you know their stories. You know how everybody's got yeah. their side of the story, but they they were really proud that they they raced against your granddad. Um, 
they raced against your dad and uh, they said they won their share of them and and working at Holman Moody you know it's a forward factory back right so uh, Ralph Moody and and John Holman were really good to my dad they they saw that he was going places right and so they said all right I know you're running a Chevrolet but if you went in the next race you win, we want competition proven on the side of that car. Mm. That's the only thing we owe us. But um but they, they raced and um and uh did that until finally just, you know, ran out of steam, ran out of energy. But when I was growing up, you know, at our house, at my grandma's house, my mama's house, it was either re- it was racing or wrestling. Wrestling. N W A. Oh yeah, <laughs> that, there you go. That was you know Ric Flair, Wahoo yeah, McGowan. Yeah. So you know you're over there on Sunday <laughs> afternoon. You're talking about the race on Saturday night and Metrolina and Ralph Dale Earnhardt, Stick Elliott, Dom Bumgarner, or you're watching wrestling. So that that was kind of how my mom's side. Uh, my dad is a son of a Baptist preacher, so he's the last of nine kids from Baptist preacher. So I kind of had both sides covered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did so your dad um, was with was nine kids. Nine, nine. La- youngest of nine kids. And his brothers and sisters, he had two brothers. His twin brother, Richard, actually ran our business for a long time at Robbie Yates Racing. Great guy, amazing guy. And his older brother was a preacher, and his sisters were all missionaries or married preachers. And so he was, uh, it, in fact, when he won, when they won the championship with Bobby in 83, it was a Miller car, but they had Quaker State sponsors. So he would tell his mom, and it was a Quaker State car. You know, because yeah. he was, she was cool with that, you know, and, right. and uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a great upbringing. I mean, back then we didn't travel to the racetrack, you know, kids couldn't go to the track, right? I mean, you, you, so I stayed with my grandma and grandpa and um, their family quite a bit yeah. and, and we're watching it and stuff, but, but the Metrolina stuff, you know, I, I told David Gray, I talked to him before the show, I said, I want to talk about you on this show, yeah. those cars, but they were, they, they did that and, um, they were all about racing, man. My dad was a – people know him as an engine guy, but he loved working on race cars. Yeah, springs and shocks and bars, and, man, he just loved – he loved it. Yeah. After um, he left juniors, what's the next step? Yeah, so he kind of took a little bit of a interim. He worked for a guy named Parky Nall and then ultimately ended up at Diegard with Daryl Walter. What was the break? What was he doing? He was just doing engine work for a guy, a local guy here, local engine shop. Building race engines? Uh, kind of some race engines, but nothing big time. Yeah. You know, my dad was a really good machinist as well, so he could kind of do it all. Yeah. I mean, he, he liked the machining part of it actually better than the assembling part. He felt like that was kind of the final thing. Uh, but he did that for about a year, and then he got hooked up with Diegard and and, um, and Daryl Waltrip and had the a lot di- of success. So the Diegard deal was so interesting because – you know, you know these people better than I do because you live you lived it with them. But your dad was in the Diegard deal a long time. He out, he he outlasted DW. He was in the middle of all that muck when all that was going down with with Daryl and his contract and all that. Daryl was interesting back then. I feel like that Daryl was interesting because he came in with building his own cars and he uh, was a winner with his own cars. And did your dad build those motors? So he. No, not those. No, not those. Not motors. those engines. I don't remember who was building those engines, but yeah. he was cocky. Right. Oh yeah. You know, and he, he, and he in the late seventies, like he's not. I don't. I don't know where DW got that cockiness from because I don't right. remember. I don't. I know he was. He was a talker and he was a broadcaster and all those things, and he certainly knew how to sell himself. But I don't remember ever him having this sort of. Well, I I, I deserve this, or I'm entitled to to 
what I think I deserve. But in those moments yeah. with with Bumgarner or not Bumgarner, but um, with with Dygard and the Gardeners, there was a why was that so difficult for Daryl to settle in? It was a good team, right? Uh, they were getting better and better. They ended up winning a championship races. with Bobby. Yeah, right. Become a they become a championship team. Why couldn't he? settle in there you know i think it was an interesting time and and some of that time that's the part of my growing up where i don't remember every single yeah. detail about it but i probably remember more of the bobby allison diegard days because gotcha. that was when i was around helping in right. the shop a lot and stuff but but my dad would tell stories about daryl and they won a lot of races yeah. settled on a lot of poles and and you're right i think they were all trying to prove themselves right with buddy parrot and all, all that crew, um, and um, Daryl just, you know, he got the nickname Jaws for for, for a reason, reason, right? And and he was he was good at that, but he just he just saw that the junior deal was a better opportunity for him, for sure. And, and it was, it yeah. turned out to be in the end, and and uh, but they had a lot of success. But my dad and Daryl actually had some animosity through that whole thing. And I'll tell you a story as a young kid, and this is kind of a moment for me. I was like, man, I'm not sure if I want to be part of this NASCAR thing or not. Um, we went to Bristol. My dad took us to Bristol one night, just me and him. And I think, um, I was riding with the crew and back then Bristol after the race, um, the fans could come down on the infield. Right. And they run like fifth that night. Daryl was complaining about the engines and, um, all night at Bristol. Right. And, um, and my dad's like, well, it was a setup and this and that. Well, anyway, they were pretty, he was pretty fired up and I'm, I'm there after the race and this, uh, fan throws a beer can and hits my dad with it. Why? Because I guess he heard that Daryl was complaining and back and forth. Well, he's and I'm sure he was pretty, pretty drunk about sure. that time. So anyway, my dad uh, commences to uh, beating the crap out of this guy and uh, a fan. Yeah, and it was a little justified, but I mean, like you know, and I'm a young kid. You know, I'm 12, 13 years old this time, maybe younger. Like man, I don't know about this race thing. You know, I'm going to church on Sunday and watching this <laughs> go down, and yeah. my dad's beating this guy off. And I don't know about this NASCAR thing, but it was it it was a memory that I won't forget. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but but after shortly after that, they quit allowing the fans to come down. Could you imagine them letting the fans out and yeah. just say just go down and see yeah. see Dale Do whatever? Well, now Junior. they'll hunk it over the fa- the fence. I mean, they don't need to be down there to get <laughs> yeah. a beer to you. That's Jeff Gordon, right? But it was a uh, it was an interesting experience. But I, I mean, that's that's kind of how far back he used to go to. I know that we know Robert Yates or even Buddy Parrott as you know some of the best people that at their position at their roles. What they they were some of the greatest. And I know at then at that time in the late seventies, maybe Daryl and even Robert and all them, they didn't know who they really were or what they were capable of. They were still this sort of budding, growing new team. And Daryl wasn't leaving the twenty eight Haviling Ford. You know, he was leaving a car and a team that, you know, he thought, I'm going on to this this there Junior won three in a row just a few years That's ago. Right. Seventy six, seventy seven, seventy eight, I mentioned. He's like, I'm going to the best car in the shop, the garage, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. What, explain though a little bit more because I like so there was a contentious so, contract negotiation. That Daryl wanted out of his deal. Was it deal. very public? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. very public. Okay. Silly, silly yeah. public. Uh huh. And so Daryl was the. There's proof of this, so he can't he can't chew my ass about this. But Daryl would get out of the car when the motor would break and be blunt. Well, if we can get these motors to last, yeah. and he would be, I, and it wasn't uncommon to see other drivers too i told you about you know kale talking about his car and junior having to say look you know you better you know, shut that up mm-hmm. but daryl would get out of the car and, and and if the motor broke he would say the 
you know, the damn motor's got to stop blowing up. What the hell, you know? Yeah, I would read, you read the quotes, and you're like, man, that's, why was he so aggressive? That's pretty, that's pretty harsh, because, <laughs> yeah, because, you know, we, I mean, we all put our heart and soul in yeah. this thing. You don't want to ever let anybody down, you know, and, yeah. but he was. Well, that was, that became, that was the norm then in the late 70s, drivers being blunt, drivers, you know, right. I, if I, if this thing stay together, we win. I win. I had this race won. Right. Damn motor blew up. Right. The, the etiquette and the you know driver's tones have changed quite a bit since then. Now, Kale, if Kale blew up, he'd get out and say, starter fell off, knocked a hole in the old pan. He would. When Waddell was <laughs> his engine. <laughs> yeah. They had it planned. Now. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, later in, later in life when my dad was going through his deal with cancer, you know, I kind of go back and forth a little bit. You know, I knew him and Daryl still had that beef from back then, you know, always carried that forward until 2017. Oh, wow. And so, and Daryl's an announcer, so kind of made it tough when, when we had a hard day, you know, kind of take that stuff personal. But but my dad's wish was like, man, I just, I want to make sure nobody's, I'm good with everybody before I'm gone. Yeah. And so I was at Atlanta, and uh, Daryl always parked right next to me there in a motorhome lot. And I went over there one Saturday morning and said, Daryl, you know, told him about what was going on. And I said, man, it'd really mean a lot if you guys could talk. And Daryl picked up the phone my dad was at his ranch and they talked for an hour mm. i don't know what they said but i know they both were smiling after after yeah. that was done and I, I peace. yeah and i was really happy about that i mean it really made me feel good about because that was you know it was a hard deal they're both like i said they're both all trying to prove themselves in the mm-hmm. sport trying to make it and um and it, and it fell apart but it you know like i said it turned out okay uh, down the road with bobby and stuff like that between bobby though there was a couple of the drivers and i know in the notes of our preparation there was a potential moment where uh your dad was trying to get gardner to hire dad yeah yeah Is that I true? Mean, well that's actually i mean that was the first time and then the second time was when we put the ada car together and that was when it really really ford was wow like, yeah so so dad well first let's go yeah, to the first yeah, one so let's yeah. go, so it's around 1981. Daryl's yep. gone to juniors. Yep. Y'all are y'all hired Rudd. Yep. Um, and still got the it's an 88 Gatorade car. And Robert at some point goes to Gardner, Bill Gardner. Yeah, Bill Gardner. And yep. says, "I need you to. I need. I want you to meet with Dale Earnhardt." And Gardner said that Dad was too rough looking. He didn't want Dad's uh, Dad. Would, <laughs> Dad wasn't polished enough, pers- visually. <laughs> he may not have been wrong about that part, no. but, but, but I don't know why that would be the criteria in which to hire a driver, right? Yeah, yeah. So that uh, was Dygard like was was that company supposed? To, is is that kind of like a polished? Uh, did, well, did the optics matter that much? So Bill Gardner was a businessman from Connecticut, right? Okay. I mean, he's really, you know, Bill and his wife Chris. I mean, great, always really good to me. But you know, it was kind of uh, kind of fell apart there. But and his brother Jim ran the operation here and that's locally but um yeah it was i guess that they felt like they were and um and we ended up going with ricky rudd as a rookie deal or they did and and it was tough i mean it just man it was rookie programs are hard as you, you guys know and some of them work out great most of them are yeah take some time well why was your dad the broker of that conversation though he's you know the engine builder i think just like back with juniors i mean my dad had a way of i mean he was always just wanted to do the best job at everything and 
he always would tell me like, look, if you clean the bathroom and do a good job, you're going to get the opportunity to do the next job. And he would build the engines good. And then he would help with the team and it's help with the setups. So he always ended up being that guy and, and, uh, more than just the engine builder. Yeah. And, uh, and so he was kind of a go-to person and a voice of reason. So how do y'all get, how does he get team back up with, uh, Bobby? Yeah. So obviously Bobby and him had a lot of history there with junior yeah. and a lot of success. And, and the deal with Ricky was just going bad and, I remember as a little kid, I mean, my dad would, we would go to work and come home and drive around the car. He said, man, I think we need to hire Bobby. What do you think? I'm like, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, why not? So he kind of, I was a sounding board, not that I provide a lot of input. Yeah. And then ultimately they put the deal together with Bobby to, to drive an 82 and, uh, what a, what a success story that it was. I mean, started out winning the Daytona 500, a bumper fell off. Um, my dad told me he was not that good of a welder. <laughs> he could always tell, he's like look it wasn't intentional but i wasn't a very good welder and, we, we uh, should probably give some context behind that yeah. like that that's a th- so is the that day, controversial so is the it, daytona 500 1982 the crew chief is gary nelson yep your dad's building motors i mean it's a fast car yeah. uh and if you look at the body on the car and everything about it i mean it's right. built for daytona and specifically to go down there and win that race the bumper falling off probably helped things in one way or another but i don't think it was an intentional uh, we need this thing to fall off at some point but that's hey. what people accused uh, of right of yeah course. it was a bumper gate and and look this bumper gate. this <laughs> thing yeah, was this it. bumper was a chrome i mean this thing i don't know weighed it was heavy right I mean, pounds? Yeah. yeah i mean it wasn't it wasn't intentional but it did fall off and yeah. and, and they did win the race and the thing was fast from the start like you said it was fast and i think if 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 anything yeah it's a little lighter but also a little bit of drag. The bumper yeah. causes a little bit of drag back there, and it's gone. Anytime a bumper comes off a car, even today, NASCAR wants you to put the bumper cover back on because it's an advantage when the bumper cover comes off. I can probably think about two or three times in my career when I got passed by a car without a bumper on it late in the race, and I'm going, damn, I want my bumper to fall off. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it was a uh, – it's just fun to dream. It's just fun to imagine that there was some conspiracy to it when there's probably not as much as we That's all right. wish there was. Is that right? And I think they went on to win uh, Daytona in July that year as yeah. well so with the same, you know, yeah. with the bumper. With the bumper <laughs> on. Yep. So they, um, were, they were on their way. I mean, it was yeah. it was a great team, and, and um, they were they – were, What are they, you – how old are you at that point? So I'm about – 15? Yeah. You know, when are you employed? When are you starting to get paid a little bit of money for what you're doing? Man, we work. That's all we did my whole life. I mean, at, you know, we grew up pretty humble beginnings uh, off Central Avenue. And um, when I was 10 years old, I had 10, 10 yards I cut. Okay. And I was just, you know, and then I would go to the shop, clean the shop. And uh, every Saturday, you know, me and my Uncle Richard, he'd come pick me up, go to the shop, clean it top to bottom, like, you know, do a really nice job. And and then started tearing on engines, washing parts, honing blocks um, when I was like 13 years old. You honed blocks at 13? Yep. Honed my yep. first block when I was 13 and on my own. And, but I had a, like the best teacher in the whole world. Do you remember what that block was for? So it was a General Motors. It was a GM program for uh, Die Guard. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So it was sometime right around the time of Bob, in between Daryl and Bobby. And, mm-hmm. and uh, man, my dad was – I mean, you know, he would he would make me do the – the toughest jobs and but he really taught me ground up and it was cool it was really cool what are some of the um like give us an example of what was critical when he's like hey man i'm gonna get you to do this job or work on this block or whatever explain to me like what set you apart what set him apart in in the detail yeah probably i mean number one just repetition you know we built a lot of engines for a lot of people and and had a lot of practice you know 
But my dad was tough on me. I mean, he he wanted if I didn't hold the wrench right, he was on me. Right. You know, this ain't that ain't that's not how you hold a torque wrench. So let me show you how to how you, how to use a torque wrench. Yeah. Here's how you here's how you use a hamper. I mean, so he was really hard on that side, and and you know, growing up was kind of tough because my dad wasn't you know there a lot. You know, so so when I had the opportunity, I really wanted to make him proud. You know, so I was always he's my hero, and I'm trying to really make him proud. And actually, the times I did best is when he was kind of went away a little bit and let me do my my thing. And um, Raymond Fox uh, Jr., he was the one who really kind of helped me learn how to build engines and let me do things. Um, like I worked for tearing on engines, washing parts for about 10 years before it ever let me put an engine together. I actually called my mom. I said, Mom, you got you to tell Dad, I need to put an engine together. Mm. I've been doing all this stuff. But, but really, it was just, you know, building great engines is all about the details. What's the emotion or the... the uh the feeling in the pit of your stomach when you've built a motor and you send it out to send it out the door and you've got to watch it go perform. Oh man, that first one I ever built and put it on the dyno, I was just a nervous wreck. Yeah, I guess you get to put it on the dyno for a little bit and at yeah. least make sure it's going <laughs> to do everything it's supposed to do. But I'll never forget the first engine I built start to finish. Um, 1991, we won Charlotte with Davy and and that that was like my first engine. Really? I built the whole thing. Really? And, and I'm like, we had a party at Jeff's house, you know, the whole nine yards. It was like, man, I have made it now. Yeah. And little do you know, is there's always a next one, right? But it was it was a cool feeling. I mean, I just, you know, just a lot of pride. I mean, you know how, how it is when you're really hands-on you know, doing something like that. But um, it, it's you know, that's what I love to do. What about when they fail? Whew, it hurts. <laughs> and, I, and I hate to use this analogy because I know it sounds wrong, but it is, it is almost like a death in the family, that kind of feeling. It's like, man, it's like just – you let people down. Yep. You 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 just the last thing you want to do is see that thing not make it to the end. And and uh, the life of engine builder is kind of hard, you know, because yeah. it's um you lose way more than you win, as you know, just in this sport in general. But um, but but you don't want to let him back down. First of all, oh, I I gotta I'm gonna ask some dumb questions here. So um, but you guys are the best at building engines, and you're talking about its attention to detail. So. I got two questions. One is, when did you realize that your dad had something different? Uh, there was something special about the way he built engines. And two is, I want to know, I know you're not going to give away trade secrets, but like w- attention to detail. Okay, well, what are the details? Like wh- where do you guys <laughs> find all this horsepower? Yeah. Like, with that, I know, you're not going to tell me, but uh, give me something. No, no, I think, I think when my dad went to, you know, they, they had the success with Bobby, won the championship. He then built Richard Petty's 200th win engine, 199 at Dover, 200 at Daytona. I'm like, that's that's pretty awesome, right? And that's um, when you realize, oh, like, he, he's the man. He's that's that's like, up there. That's you know, up that's there. up there. But really, when it really started to um, come to me is when he went to work for Rainier Lundy and and really took over the Ford program and and uh, took a program that was just kind of getting going, and uh, really with Davy Allison really started setting that on the right path and back then so everybody built their own engines back then so if there's 40 cars there's 40 engine builders and so when i started when i graduated college in 1990 you know we built our own engines had our own cars you know we owned three engines six race cars but we came up with and you could modify the parts as much as you wanted to there was no templates on the cylinder heads and stuff like that so we took a stock ford racing engine welded up the ports, moved the valves, moved the spark plug, and it took about three months to, 
to process a set of heads. You got to weld them, heat treat them, machine them, et cetera. Mm. And that cylinder head was 50 horsepower better than anything else wow. out there. That's what I'm talking about. That was creativity. And that was 1990. And all of a sudden, you know, Jake was our crew chief and we're, you know, we're kind of, we have good engines. We just don't have it all put together right now. And then when Larry McReynolds came to work for us in 1991 with that power and with Larry's setups and, and team, man, we are on our way. So yeah. where does the idea, where's the idea seated to even go with those cylinder heads and, and start sort of like thinking so far outside the box? And how confident are you that that's even going to work? Well, it took a lot of iterations, but my dad was always, he would always say you win with advantages. That was his thing. You always have to look, search, work. And he also was a guy who, you know, you're going to beat somebody because you're working Friday night when they're out on a date with a girlfriend. And that was, that's what we did. I mean, that's all we did is just work, work, work. And you just start thinking about, you really kind of have to, without sounding a little weird, you kind of kind of put yourself inside the engine. You think about how the combustion process works, how the airflow works. You want to get more air in the engine. You want to burn it faster and you want to reduce the friction in the engine. And those are the main two things about it, building engines more, you know, increase the airflow and reduce the friction. And, and that's the things you work on. And at, at that time, I mean, he had, you know, Larry Wallace was a cylinder head guy, really famous guy. He had his own engine company for a while. Um, James Luter was our machinist, Vernon Hubbard. I mean, it was a really small group of guys and, 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 um, we just, we just got after it. The advantage that you're talking about was absolutely apparent for many years. As, Na as NASCAR starts to cut the opportunities of creativity and uh, limit your ability to, to be able to um, craft the cylinder head the way you wish and all those things. As those things are sort of stripped away, how difficult did it become to be able to really set yourself apart and continue that sort of standard or that expectation uh, that your dad or you had for the motors y'all built? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. I mean, we, you know, that cylinder head really started us going. And when I started working there for my dad, we were making 600 horsepower. And right away through the cylinder, 650. And then we, the oil pan was a mess. And, the, and, and we, what do you mean? Then it was, so when you'd run the engine, all the oil would stay in the pan, you know, and it just causes windage and, and it's just uh, beating up the crank. And, and so we figured out how to, uh, to put a vacuum to each of the sumps and to seal the engine. And that was another, you know, 25 horsepower. <laughs> and so next thing you know, man, we're making 650, 700, 750. And we would do all this stuff. Like it'd always be like Friday night at seven o'clock. The weather's getting good, you know, and, and you're working hard. And, and we were just coming up with things that, I mean, it was, it was crazy. We were at Michigan one time with Davey and, uh, we had a rear seal, rear main seal leak in the engine. And, um, and we, I took it over to Jack's trailer. He had an engine stand in his trailer and changed their rear main seal and put it back in. And Dan Ford from Hendrick came by and he asked Norman, our, our uh, Norman uh, Kushimishi, he oh said, yeah. Norman, I mean, you don't have a backup engine? He said, yeah, but only, that one only makes 700. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, I mean, and we put, you know, put the engine back in, went out and won the race. And it was just, it was just coming so fast. And, and we were just, you know, my dad would always, all right, start at the, start at the air box. And work on every single part to the tailpipes, yeah, and 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 start all over again, and that, and that's what we did, and and it was really it was really fun, man. It was really cool. I mean, there's so many times I would call him, you know, he, I, I didn't leave the shop before seven o'clock. First ten years I worked there, you know, it was like, or we're on the road going to race, right, drive back and forth. But uh, I would call him, say, man, we made five more horsepower, we made ten more horsepower, 
And that was the relationship we had. And and he pushed me. Like, there's plenty of times where we were slamming doors and, you know, getting on each other. But we made each other better. And it was really cool. And and I think you told Jeff that you thought he was my brother. Uh-huh. And and I never called him dad. I, I never called him dad around the shop because I wanted people to – I wanted to earn my respect. People to, I had to earn it. So I'd always call him Robert. So I think people thought that they I were – I always had to remind myself that you were his son because y'all – we're so similar, equal, and you know what yeah. I mean. It, 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 had I maybe experienced NASCAR in the in the early '80s and you know late '70s a little differently, maybe I would have been able. To, that would have been imprinted on my mind. He loved that, by yeah. the way, as you can imagine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was it was cool. We just had fun doing it, and then um, I love working with him. And he he really let me do the engine thing, and then he focused on the cars and the team, and yeah. working with Larry McReynolds and Todd Parrott and all those guys. Yeah. What's up, Download listeners? It is the biggest time of the year right now for college basketball. And I will tell you, regardless of who makes it to the final game in the tourney, one thing is for certain. It takes the most talented people working together to help these teams play at the next level. And if you are hiring, you want the most talented people on your team to help your business go to the next level. And how do you do that? Zip Recruiter. That's right, man. We just went through a big hiring process ourselves, mm-hmm. and it was helpful to have Zip Recruiter's powerful technology, which starts showing you qualified people for it immediately after you post your job. Yeah, that is crazy. Mm-hmm. Pick Zip Recruiter to help you build a winning team. See why four out of five employers who post on Zip Recruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try Zip Recruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash Dale Jr. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash Dale Jr. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. As an engine builder in the sport, I imagine you've heard this pretty creative stuff out there. I know, you know, for example, when Sterling was winning those races at Daytona and so forth, that there was a lot of rumors about how they were getting some power. And one of the things that I kept hearing was that they uh, were sucking air through the valve cover studs. Right in the uh in the heads so they drill mike they would to help mike understand and and you can tell me whether there's any truth to it but the stud that holds the valve cover on they drill a hole through that into the valley or into the intake and suck air that way and so they could turn that you know they could figure out a way to seal that off to where when it it could pass tech you know Mm. and they could they they wouldn't be able to see it nascar wouldn't see it it could be some wax involved i'm not sure so the wax (laughs) yeah go out there and heat he would melt the wax and is this that morgan mcclure number yes. four kodak car yeah it sounded different didn't it like it like the, the car the motor did sound different than all the other cars well, if you it was, did it, <laughs> it might whistle if you were standing next to it. <laughs> <laughs> well they, they had to pit about five laps before anybody <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i okay, mean so so that guess, is pretty uh i thought it was genius. great yeah. i actually tried it in my late model motor, I'm thinking, well, if it works, <laughs> we had these little two barrel carburetors, you know, and they weren't, you, you start, you trying to get all the air and you could into the thing. And, uh, and so I had a, I had a, there's a, there's a plug on the back, on the top of the intake in the back, right behind the carburetor. And so I drilled a hole in that plug and I drilled a hole and I could turn the plug to where it would, you know, line all the holes up to be able to get the air, suck air through that plug. And then I could turn it and it'd stop. Because it would whistle, mm-hmm. you, know, you could hear, you could faintly hear like the sound of that 
that. So what was the ultimate result? There. Yeah, how, how much power did you make? Yeah. I have no idea. I didn't put my stuff on the dyno. I'm just like a. Yeah. I would just we would just jet it. We knew we had to put more fuel right. in it, so it must be pull more air. In. Right. Right. So it was working. It was working. <laughs> but, okay, uh, so you used the Morgan McClure example as like some some creative things to do towards the engine. Um, yeah. What are some of the other things y'all you might have heard or you might have thought about doing or? And my dad was always he he told me he said look stop thinking about that stuff yeah. don't don't I know it's out it there tempting don't think about it because yeah. look if you get caught cheating one time you're a cheater you're a cheater mm-hmm. and your entire career that's what people are gonna remember right there yeah and he said don't think about it. just focus on the basics and this this thing will all come back around you know just just but Runt was pretty creative right Runt Pittman was he was building the motors on the four car he was a four car yeah and what. What I had heard is, you know, they start drinking beer up there about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> At Morgan's. And so four. everybody has a little bit more courage. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody's a, everybody's a badass until you have to go load up and go to Daytona, right? Yeah. And so, we, you know, we tried some of those things, of course, and, but we never, we never did that. I mean, yeah. we, some of the things, like back in the day, you would have floating pieces in the manifold, in the intake manifold. So on a restrictor plate engine, you know, got the restrictor plate, four holes, and you put this cluster down below it, right? What's it look like? So it has like four tubes. There's a big tube in the center and then four holes, and it was all this single piece of block of aluminum. And so we said, okay. And then NASCAR had a stop sign gauge where we put it in the top of the manifold where it has to sit below that gauge, right? The gauge has to go in there. So this cluster's sitting down there. So we tack one, we make one, tack it in, and we're running, you know, running, running, running. Next thing you know, this engine picks up like 25 horsepower. I'm like, what the heck? Let, turn it off. Hear this thud. Dink. I'm like, that's weird. So go in there, check it. Well, the welds came loose. I'm like, that's interesting. Let's run it again. So anyway, when that thing, when the vacuum, the delta pressure hits that, that thing pops up to the top of that plate, and man, she takes off. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, this is good. Yeah, this is good. And I know Hendrick had some deal with a with a um, you know some way to temperature like a thermostat on it where it released it and all this stuff. Interesting. But, but we, um, you know, we went back and forth, back and forth. One time going through tech at Daytona, we changed manifolds three times because we weren't sure whether we wanted to run it or not. And we decided not to run it. And then they had this huge wreck. And it's like, all right, well, I'm, we got in the wreck. And it's like, well, I'm glad we didn't do that. Yeah. But there's all kinds of things back then. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, they, we would make all kinds of – I mean, we had a CNC machine before anybody else did. So we were making all kinds of different inserts and tubes. And it was pretty creative. Just for the intake itself. Just so, for the intake. Yeah, I think – so you know Richie Gilmore. And so Richie Gilmore helped uh, – Richie Gilmore was part of the uh, Hendrick – uh, and Chevrolet engine program, Derek Cope's Daytona 500 win, Richie jump, oh, yeah. Richie's in pit road jumping up down with a pure leader suit on. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. So, awesome. I mean, he's been he's been a part of some pretty fast That's race cool. cars, and he was a part of the the, car, the engines that I won all my races with at Talladega and Daytona, and I know that a lot of the pace that we were able <laughs> to. Richie's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So Our intakes. He's, we had we, we had this one. I won three of the four in a row at Talladega with the same engine. It won it won July Daytona. So like we had the same engine, and you married the, te- the intake and the and and the heads and everything to get. So all that stuff would, would race. We just rebuild it and go again. And yeah. uh, we had one motor that was a special engine. Just it, you know, you marry everything together and it just works. Right, it just it, you know, oh, yeah. you know what I'm talking about. Yep. You kind of get that. You get you find that set of heads and that intake that just works so well together. Every time we were going to Daytona Talladega, Tony Senior and Tony Junior would make sure that that 
engine number was the one we were going to have in our car. Oh, yeah. And I know that, you know, I don't know exactly. I wish I knew. I'd tell you right now. But I know that there was a lot of ingenuity in that intake from Gilmore's history and, you know, all the years of working with uh, Hendrick and everything. Yeah, Richie is one of the best for sure. I mean, it brought a little bit of heat. I mean, like, you know, you were mad at Jimmy Spencer for so long because of – you know, people making accusations that NASCAR is like, you know, letting you run a different plate and this, yeah. that, and the other because you were on a tear at those plate races. But you're saying that engine was just. Yeah, I mean, you know, the 15 car, uh, Michael, his cars ran good too. So, I mean, there were more than yeah. one good engine. But my motor, I, that motor was, we wanted that motor every damn time we were going to Daytona Talladega. Crew chiefs are big about writing them numbers down. They too. are. Yeah, they know exactly every, the, the car rayer, the intake man, all the block. Yeah. But, uh. Look, I love the Daytona 500. That's that's been from the time I started with my dad all the way up. So my goal is to to be good at Daytona, right? Yeah. So we won the '92 Daytona 500 with Davey. We won the '96 with DJ. We won 2000 with DJ, and then here you come, and man, you you put a damper on our <laughs> Daytona 500 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from well, from then until 2009. We, you won everything. That's an interesting point because it would be, you would have an interesting vantage point being the competition is that when. The Earnhardts and Childress and Andy Petrie sort of oh, got together and formed that RAD program. What was your what was your uh, impression of that? Because that really did pay di- benefits to them, right? Uh, total frustration. I mean, we we were, you know, like I said, we were on a pace like it's like the election. Every four years, we're going to win the Daytona 500, right? <laughs> and and then here they come with that program, and and you and Michael and and um, man, we were. We we really struggled. I mean, it was it was tough for us, and um, it was just frustrating because you know we work on the engine, work on the car, work, you know, just that process. But we just couldn't catch up, and you guys dominated for many years there. Yeah. Do you, do you know why? Like, do you know what they were doing now? You know, in hindsight, uh, where they were just well, obviously they had a great engine. We just learned about, and they, I know they had great race cars and great race car drivers. And and there's something about you know. You can have a great engine and a great car, but you got to have a great driver. And and you were one of the best ever on plate races. And and uh, man, it was it was tough for us. We um there was I'll tell you not only were the motors, um, some of the best engines in the garage at the time, but Tony Senior's the crew chief on the eight car, and um, Slugger Labby is the crew chief on the fifteen, and they would be in competition with each other on at you know out cheating each other so you know the 15 car would come down pit road on the first pit stop and slugger would pull 10 rounds out of the back <laughs> ain't no way it's passing pick but he dropped the car as low as he could now tony senior's like well damn i was only gonna do five <laughs> that ain't that's, that's egregious i'm gonna have to do 10 you know and so and that was going on if that was going on during the pit stops that you know imagine what was happening during the week you know, the 15 shop was yeah. half a mile down the road or, or a quarter mile down the road. But, oh, what what did you hear they did to the rear spoiler? Oh, yeah, is that what they're going to do? But Well, we're going to do it. But you back know? then, there was so much creativity yeah. on the cars and the engines. But, but the cars itself was huge. So oh, yeah. my dad let me run the team for one year. It didn't work <laughs> out so well. But all we worked on was plate racing. And that's when Elliot Sadler was driving our 38 car. And we sat on three or four poles in a row mm-hmm. at Talladega. And, but the car was... That car was really cool. It was really – we couldn't finish a race. I mean, it would be upside down about every – Oh, yeah. Y'all did have – Yeah. I did, <laughs> right? Y'all did have fast cars. But uh, we, we sat on some poles there, and um, and we just loved Daytona. But it takes everything. I've, we've never won a 500 without a, a, a great engine and a great car and a great driver. Yeah. Sure. You know what I mean? It just – it takes all of it. But 
back then it, you could you could spend hours in a wind tunnel, hours on the dyno, and really make a difference. Now it, it's so tight, and and the racing, in my opinion, and and you know this way better than me, but it's it's very manufacturer specific, right? Yes. And if you have the numbers, we've been very fortunate with Ford to have the numbers, and that's I think that's been a part of our reason why we've won some of these races. Um, I recently. would. I would be miserable in in a plate race today because it was, I was uh, selfish and wasn't wanting to work with anybody and didn't care who was going to help me as long as I was getting help. But I wasn't going to be like, you know, I, I don't know. I couldn't. I, you wouldn't want to go to those teams meetings cannot, before the race. Hell no. I'd be the first one going, I ain't doing this. Y'all know I ain't doing this, this plan. <laughs> I ain't saying anything. I'll go, but y'all ain't going to yeah. get anything out of me. Yep. Yeah, it's so changed a Yeah, so you hinted about uh, uh, the second time that your dad tried to hire my father to drive for him, and that was later when um, y'all were doing the two-car deal. Y'all had the, yeah. the 28 and the 88. This is, um, I guess, Ernie's back from his crash in Michigan. Uh, so now you've had Dale Jarrett driving that car. Right. Now you're going to have two cars. I remember this conversation, uh, hearing this somewhere, where there was some – there was a you know there was a moment I think where y'all weren't quite sure what to do with with Dale, Jarrett. Yeah. And I think through the through, you know he he did y'all a solid. Is that the way you saw it? Is like I, man this guy did a hell of a job for us. We gotta. Absolutely, out absolutely. After you know we we needed somebody to drive when Ernie got hurt. Man, we just come off of Davy's accident, um, tragic accident, and um, man that was tough. We yeah. we. Not even sure if we wanted to keep going, right? Didn't how race. close? How close did you come to maybe not going? You know, my dad said he said, you know, we didn't go to Pocono the next week, and he said, you know, we can't race with tears in our eyes, and 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 your dad won the race, I believe, and um, carried that twenty eight mm-hmm. flag around, and um, and then we went to Talladega, and, but but it was it was a hard decision, but the reason why we kept going is because all the it was a family. You know, Robert Yates yeah. racing was a family, it's a big, and, and it wasn't about. Robert or me, it was about everybody, yeah. right? So we needed to keep going, and we got it back on track with Ernie, and we got Ernie Irvin. I mean, he was the closest thing to Dale Earnhardt has ever been. I mean, he, yeah. I mean, he is. He wasn't as intimidating, but he tried, and he was damn good, super talented. He gets hurt. It's like, man, what else can happen to us? That was a practice crash, uh, blue right front tire at yep. Michigan. Yep. And he was on the show and told us about how close he came to losing his life that day on that back straightaway. Gave him ten percent chance, and and Ernie and I were really close. We we actually hung out together, and we were together playing games the night before, and and um and that was hard because that was probably the closest guy. My dad, Davey, was a second son to my dad, and I was just getting started. So Davey, we're all close, but we weren't as close as Ernie and I were really close. I mean, that was that was really hard, and and um he's just I mean he's one of the most competitive, toughest guys I've ever ever been around and and he made it and he came back and he he raced with a patch on his eye yeah. which is crazy yeah um that's how talented he was that's crazy to me because um i remember you know to i don't know how to, else to say this um and and uh, but when he came he came back and he raced a truck at north Wilsboro, mm-hmm. and he wore these sunglasses but when he there's pictures of him with him glasses off and i can't you would never a, a driver would never be allowed to compete uh, while still trying to recover from what he was trying to recover from, right? Right. And he literally, I mean, he could, he he might have a different opinion, but I mean, there's no way that he had good 
solid vision to, right. to pass a physical and, and compete. But he went out right. there and did it. Raced with a patch. That's right. On his eye. Raced with a patch yeah. on his eye. And then won. Like yeah. he, he, he could get back to winning a race. But he admitted that, by the way. He admitted yeah. like he was like, yeah, I wasn't good. I, yeah. I, I wasn't health-wise back. Well, he got to use that excuse he had a head injury. He used that a lot. Yeah. But, um, but my dad came out and he said, all right, we've got a driver for um, a 28 car. And we got all the team guys together. He said, uh, Dale Jarrett's our guy. And we're like, I'm not sure what I feel about that. You know, I mean, Dale Jarrett's yeah. a good guy. I mean, he's won Daytona 500. But, man, we've had Davey Allison and Ernie Irvin. You and want the best guy in the business in that car. Exactly. And But but Dale, so so he told us that. And, and Dale, they've been struggling with Gibbs. And May Carr was his crew chief and brother-in-law and all that stuff. So, I think he wanted, you know, a – his own deal. And so they won Charlotte in the fall and my dad and I were driving home. I said, man, you think he's still going to come? You know, I mean, he, do we have a contract? No, we don't have a contract, but he shook my hand. He called us that night. He called my dad that night. said, don't you worry. I'm still going to be there. Mm. And, um, started 1995 season, um, settled on a pole for Daytona 500. But we, we struggled. It was, it was, it was tough, man. It was, Dale's probably told you some of the stories, but, and we finally won Pocono. It's like, all right, maybe we got something going here. And then Ford called my dad and said, we want you to run a – and Ernie was getting better. I said, we want you to run a second car. My dad said, look, there's only one place in Victory Lane. There's only one spot in Victory Lane. That's how he thought about it. He yeah. didn't really want two cars. And he said, Robert, we, want, we really need you to do this. And we want Dale Earnhardt to drive it. Okay, well, I'll see what I can do. And uh, so he called your dad, and, and, um, and they talked, and – he, he deep down, he felt like it probably wasn't the right thing to do. And the reason why he told me that is because Ford hired Richard Petty back years, way back. Like, Richard Petty's a Dodge guy. Dale Earnhardt's a Chevrolet guy. Yeah. So he knew that he wanted him to drive a car, but he, he thought he'd probably give him a raise and he'd probably have to do something different. And he liked Dale Jarrett. I mean, he really, my dad believed 100% Dale Jarrett, and then he turned out to be right. Yeah. And, um, and so – he called Edsel and, and he told Edsel Ford, he said, look, here's the deal. We can't get Dale. Or maybe he just said, look, we've got the right Dale. And his name is Dale Jarrett. Yeah. And Edsel said, okay, well, you got one mission. And he said, what's that? He said, you beat that number three good wrench car. You hear me? <laughs> and, uh, and, and that was our mission. Yeah. And, uh, and the Daytona 500 1996 won the race and that black three was second. Yep. Couldn't pass it. Man, y'all are so fast. Dude, that was so awesome. They changed the engine rules that year. They took all that stuff out of the manifold, cleaned that up, changed the compression ratio, and we had this carburetor that was just pretty special where the butterflies opened the same direction and you could offset that base plate. Seven horsepower right there. <laughs> my dad would not let us put <laughs> – he would, he would not let us bolt that carburetor on until happy hour. So we went down there, qualified, qualified decent. You guys might have been on the pole. And then we went run at 125, and I kept like, Dad, come on, let's let's put these carburetors up on the cabinet in the <laughs> Yeah. And uh, it's me and Steve Allen were the engineers. Steve was on the 88, I was the 28. And um, and there's no rule against it at the time. It's, there is now. Well, there was when they had carburetors. But and um and so we kept saying, Come on, Big Daddy, come <laughs> on, Big Daddy, let's put those carburetors on. He said, No, 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 not yet, not yet. It's not time. Yeah. Like the like the governor or something yeah. you know so finally he said all right boys it's time we bolted those things on in happy hour i said man if we make it through tech we're gonna win this race 
So I'm a nervous guy, man. I'm shy and nervous. And so I'm like, Steve, you go first. And he's like, <laughs> <laughs> so he went through tech. Oh, man, I'm I'm torn up, man. I can't, can't eat, can't sleep. Can't. And I said, how'd it go? He said, they took my car over I said, no, they didn't. He said, I'm just messing with you. Oh, wow. So <laughs> so we uh, we went through tech and um, dang it, if, the race we um we lost ignition box on the twenty eight and um and and then the eighty eight went on to win that race and that was so cool man that was one of my favorite favorite races ever um the ninety two five hundred was just my favorite because it was the first and we worked yeah. so hard for it but it, but that race was cool and but Etzel said you beat that black number three. Hey everyone, Dirty Mo Media President Mike Davis here. Excited to tell you about one of our newest sponsors at Dirty Mo, Airbnb. The irony here is that Airbnb is new to Dirty Mo Media, but Dirty Mo Media is not new to Airbnb. It has been accommodating us for years. And if you are a race fan, and I think you are, you know why. I mean, you've booked hotels at, uh, during a race weekend. They're, the prices are insane. You're stuck with these unreasonable multi-night minimums. Whereas Airbnb, you got many choices, all within proximity, and it ends up being way more affordable. Now, I'm not only a frequent Airbnb guest, but my wife and I are also Airbnb hosts. And you should be too. We've been doing it for years. I'll tell you why. We have an investment property that we realized it could be earning additional income through Airbnb. You don't have to have an investment property to do that. You could just find extra space in your home. That works too. It all could be making you some extra cash. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Davey had a a mission to you know to beat Dad. Dad had been able to, <laughs> Dad had been able to mi- manipulate most every driver that he competed against. He he'd run into them, then he'd put his arm around them, and <laughs> ah, you're not mad at me, are you? <laughs> yep, <laughs> seen it all. Every every driver just about. Yep. You know, and but Davey. Uh, I remember having something on the dash of the car at one point about, you know, going to, you know, we're not in, we're, we're the real deal. We're not in, we're not bothered by the three car. And I know you guys, and y'all were, uh, y'all's car was black. Y'all were, yep. you know, y'all were fast, you know, couldn't, we don't, we weren't going to outrun you on a straightaway. And, uh, and, you know, Davey was quickly, quickly becoming uh, a perfect race car driver, you know, just a guy that could, could go out there and win any race he started in. And then you know, with Ernie, same thing. You 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 said it. He's like the he's like Dale Earnhardt all over again. Right. And he'll put the bumper to you, even Dale Earnhardt. Yep. You know, he wasn't scared. I thought, man, these guys are going to be hard to beat for a long, long time. Uh, but it was pre- it's pretty interesting and to Davy was and and you know Davy is he was intimidated by your dad, and we all he? we all knew it. Yeah, mm. he was. I mean, he would race toe to toe with him, but he was you know he was your dad he's, was still the man. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, so we we all knew that, and we knew when we got around him, we had to be careful. And and uh, and but he, you know, but Davey was so he was finesse. I mean, he knew what he wanted in the car, and he got it right. Man, he could he could win yeah. anywhere. Right. But I, um, I feel like though that he had y'all had uh y'all had give Davey this confidence that like man you can beat you can beat that guy. I know you look up to him, and I know he's like your like you know, he's you know you come into the sport as young as Davey was, and you look up to you know Dale Earnhardt. Of course, you're going to look up to him. But right. I think you guys did a really good job of sort of building his confidence up to be like, man, you can beat this guy, no problem. 
and he felt he, that. He was, you know, we, you know, the 92 season, I mean, it's well documented, right? The empty cup deal. Every time I watch that, man, I get, guy, it tears me up, you know, but Davey Allison is the toughest guy you've ever seen. I, I can't even, and, you know, we, we broke an oil line at Bristol. We thought it we blew up, but it actually broke a fitting and broke his ribs, right? Cracked his ribs. Go the next week at North Wilkesboro, Jimmy Hensley gets in the car, qualifies, and Dave gets in the car, wins the race. And um, and then it was just like that all, all year long, right? We'd win, wreck, win, wreck. The one hot night, mm. win that race, cut him out of the car, go to the hospital. But um, he, he was I, – I can't even – I can't even imagine somebody doing that these days. I you know, know yeah. how damn tough he was. <clears throat> mm, yeah. But he was and he was just focused, man. He was so focused. And um and he knew how good his dad was and he wanted to be better than his dad. And that right there is the reason why my dad picked Dale Jarrett because Dale's dad was awesome. Your dad was awesome. I and mean, you knew what it was like. You knew what that meant. You knew what you needed to do. And um but Davy Davy wanted he was out to prove something. Uh, but at the end of that whole deal, when it was all said and done, and we went into that last race with a championship lead, and all we needed to do was, you know, kind of have a solid day. Ernie wrecked in front of us. We get to him. He gets out and is like, it just wasn't meant to be. Yeah. You're talking about Atlanta. Atlanta. 92, yeah. yeah. That last race. Yeah. And we were all, you know, I was young, dumb, thought we should win every single race and, and mad. And I feel bad about it now because, you know, it's like, it's just you know it's kind of what it is, but he he was an incredible leader and uh, had an incredible faith and 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 he's like this is going to be okay. Yeah. Who built who built y'all's race cars the chassis? So back when Laughlin built most of them because yeah. that was Larry was a Laughlin guy, yeah. right? And then they came, then they went and get finished out at a Allison Brothers. Yep, they did some things for us. Yeah. We got bodies home. So I got I got a job over at Allison Brothers. I worked there. I got so I got some of my pay stubs, my checks. Um, so I worked for Kenny and yep. Ronald and Donald, which is Donnie's sons. Yep. And I'm helping them on the front with Legends cars and uh, going to the junkyard and getting all these parts and stuff and for the Legends cars to make spindles. Davies and Ernie's, I, got, I can't remember which year it was. I think it was when Davey was driving, but those ghost cars are in the back. They mm. had a back room where they did we built race cars and finished out race cars, hung bodies and the interior sheet metal and stuff like that. And so I'm I'm up there working on those. This is for probably, I don't know, I worked there for three months, six months or something. And uh, it was interesting for me That's because, cool. like, he's, you know, he you, you talk about the, you know, it was us or them. Right. You know, it was a black, it was the three or the 28. And, and I'm working at the Allison mm-hmm. Brothers uh, yeah. with, the, with David. He's with a David's, plant. His car, I'm a mole. <laughs> I shouldn't He's know. a mole. <laughs> hey, Daddy, you ain't going to believe what they hey, got on this right. thing. <laughs> I walk back there. I walk back there, and I'm like, whoa. There's one of the 28 cars. Dude, I was, like, starstruck. Oh, that right. was before cell phones and cameras. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, you bring up something funny that I had never even considered. I wonder, going back to your tech story at Daytona, I wonder how many people have actually given themselves up just by the way they were acting so nervous in the tech line. Yeah. Like, sometimes, <laughs> you know, the way you say it, you can't eat, you can't sleep, you're just nervous wreck or whatever. Yep. I mean, like, if, an, if I'm a NASCAR official, before I go open up that hood, I might just take a peek around and, like, look I, at somebody in the eye. I probably know probably more guys on the other side of that deal. Like, one guy you mentioned earlier, Slugger, was pretty good at getting things through. Yeah. You know, those guys. Were, <laughs> Slugger did work at, yeah. at Yates. He did. He did. That's he, he right. for us. Yep. And, um... Yeah, we had a good time working together. But um, one, one story I want to make sure to tell you about 
Davey and your dad, and I love this story. This, this is like the – as an energy guy, you don't get a whole lot of compliments. This is like the biggest compliment that you've ever have ever got. So we were at Atlanta. I think it was like 91, and old Atlanta track. I used to love it because you could see the whole track, you know, sitting right. up there. And, um, and man, we were, we were just blowing by the three down the straightaway, and your dad drive back by us in the corner. We blow back by, and, and your dad came on the radio and said, Richard, you watching this? He said, yes, Dale. He said, look, I can beat Davey, but there ain't no damn way I'm beating Robert. Mm. <laughs> and as an engine guy, that was as good as yeah. it gets, you know what I mean? And uh, we, had, we had a really good, uh, good motor at that time, but um, that, that was fun yeah. racing back there. He, he was amazing at, at Atlanta. Yeah, you know how Dale was talking was, about. He was lucky that cor- that track had so much corner. Oh my god, <laughs> there's a lot. Oh yeah. my god, it had big corners, yeah, right? Long corners. Well, back then they didn't push their engines that hard because they knew that. I mean, and they would. Richard would say that, and Danny Lawrence would tell me, "It's like we don't need to blow up. We're gonna we're gonna be in this thing, and they win championships like yeah. that." And we were hanging it out, and we would break every once in a while, and different deal. You know how Dale has that uh, restrictor plate motor that he you know, holds on top of the mountain, basically. It. You still have that motor, right? Do you have Richard, one? Rich, so, um, right before, we were at the, we were going to win, when we won four in a row at Talladega. That weekend, that morning, there was water and oil and a freeze plug had, had pushed itself out or so, right. something had happened. And they were like, it wasn't water and oil, but a freeze plug had cracked. Got it. And they were like, we could probably replace it, but we're worried about it, so we're going to change the motor. And they took the motor out, and, and it never ran again. They put it on a pedestal, and it's on like a – it's really nice pedestal, and they say, it gave it to me. So I have it. You mean you should look at it one day? Yeah. Take, love, take love, can I look at the manifold? Yes. <laughs> you can tell me what it is. You can yeah, look yeah, at it and go, oh, there it is. We should do that. No, that would be awesome. Like, take that motor, bring it in here, just yeah. let you go to town and let you tell us why it's so good. Let's do it. But, Deal. Do, do, do you have a motor that – is similar to that in terms of you just like the one that will always be in your in the top of your mind is like the motor that you're most proud of you know it so that that 92 500 deal was pretty cool i mean we um you know we only had one engine we only had a couple engines right and so we would go qualify with it and we'd bring it back home and rebuild it and take it back down and race it that's just you only have one good one right you didn't know why because you didn't have all this equipment and so um that one my dad he built the bottom end. I did the rest, and he couldn't come back home because uh, he had a plastic coat deal. He had to go do. That was his sponsor, right? He used to hand out the yeah. checks and stuff. So he said, "I can't do it." So I said, "I got this. I, I can do this." And and so I was built. You know, went back home, took it apart with all the guys, and I'm putting the engine together. And he keeps calling me on the phone. I said, "Dad, if you don't quit calling me, I'm never going to get this thing back down there." But that 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 race, that engine was pretty cool. But we grew up. We we didn't keep anything. I mean, we, we had one rule around my house. If it's not tied down, sell it. Dang. And because, you know, we were always buying the next piece of equipment, the next race car, the next engine. I mean, we didn't have a dealership or anything that we could pull from other than what we did. And mm. the engine business was kind of that. But So we, don't, we didn't have a lot of memorabilia around our place. I want to go back to uh, your dad when he left Digard. Where are things at that point and why did he leave? Yeah, it, it was it was tough at that point because, you know, what had happened is, you know, he was building – they won a championship with Bobby, yep. um, Richard Petty, Mike Kerb, Buddy Parrott. They said, we want you to build our engines. We're struggling. We want to, you to build build Richard Petty. So, for my dad, he owned part – well, he's supposed to own part of the engine company, which he 
never was on paper. So he didn't really says, okay, let's do it. So he built those engines um, and won the 199th the Dover, 200th at Daytona, like we talked about. And then Bobby just lost it. It was, it was. He was frustrated with that. Yeah. He just, Bobby was always easy to get frustrated. Yeah. That was, um, so uh, it's interesting to, I've always wondered about Bobby when he won all those races with Junior Johnson in the early 70s. I'm like, why did Bobby do, why did Bobby's career do what it did yeah. after that? Because he bounced around and he'd, middle of the season, he just, I'm going to run my own damn car then. And he'd get his own, he'd go back to his own, uh, Hueytown or whatever and run his own car. He couldn't ever really find a fit, you know, where, and he was, he would get hot about something and yeah he bobby is his own i mean he was his own worst his own worst enemy yeah in some ways right he was anti-establishment a little bit you know in some some ways you know you you were either a richard petty Petty fan or a bobby allison fan it was like there was that beef between them you were like the the beatles or elvis right you couldn't be you couldn't couldn't be be both both. right and so bobby was kind of the anti-nascar kind of guy in some ways but he was so smart I mean, I mean, he he knew the cars inside and out. Mm-hmm. First guy to put power steering on a car, right? I mean, first guy to do lots of things. And but he always kind of he he challenged everything, and I think that wore on people sometimes. But man, he was just an incredible guy. So obviously. he was also frustrated, I think, by the second car they had sacks in a car. Yeah, and that was annoying to him i think yeah i think i think it just you know you a lot of things maybe a lot of things you know it's just the success um uh, you know i think that his views and gary's views were different so how long when did your dad decide that he was gonna have to take off yeah it was it was uh he could see the writing on the wall you know i mean he knew it was coming he knew he's gonna have to do something different he needed a break why was diegard going the way it was going why was it why did it what, why did Diegard end up becoming basically this shell of itself? Yeah, I think I think that Bill and Jim, Jim, good guys, I just think they just – Bill wasn't close enough to it. You know what I mean? And, and kind of from afar it was maybe a little too easy almost. And and it just um, it just wasn't going the right direction. He wasn't close enough to it to keep keep it heading the right direction. And, and that may be putting it nicely. I don't know. I wasn't, you know, part of all those sure. things. But um, – my dad saw it coming. He knew it was time to do something different, and he took off, and he did fuel research down in Greenville, South Carolina, set up an engine shop, you know, was going to do this ethanol, turned out to be ethanol research, and, and uh, set up an engine shop. Unrelated to motorsports. Out of motorsports, and, um, man, it, it killed him. I mean, it was it – was, I remember him watching the 85 Daytona 500 and, and um, didn't have a car in it, and it, was, it just about killed him. And so he knew he had to get back in it, and it wasn't long after we were moving all that stuff. I was driving the truck, yeah. you know, bringing everything back up here out to the Speedway where we set up our engine shop. How did your dad broker the purchase of the 28 Ford uh, Lanier team? Yeah, so at the end of that 85 year, um, you know, going into 86, sometime around there, um, my dad, Rick Hendrick called my dad because he was building engines for Jeff Bodine and Gary Nelson. He and Gary obviously had a good relationship. We had about five cars. And um, Lee Morris from Ford Motor Company called and said, hey, we want you to come run this Rainier Lundy team. Waddell's getting out of this, uh, this moving is the, on. This is the 28 Hardy's car. Kelly Yarborough oh, yeah. was a badass mm-hmm. in. Yes, um, sir. And now it's going to be Davey's car. That's right. So he, he had a choice. Do I go to work for Rick Hendrick 
or do I do this Ford deal with Rainier Lundy? And the Ford deal was just a better deal. I mean, at the end of the day, it was both would have probably been okay, but the Ford deal was uh, a better deal. And, and um, come run this team. You can be the team manager, build the engines, and, and here we go. And Kale was finishing up his career, and we got to do a couple of those races. And those cards were hand-painted, by the way, the craziest thing. They'd come in the shop and paint them, you know, letter them. Really? Oh, yeah. Joey Knuckles was there yeah. and all those guys. And, but um, like going into 87, they said, all right, well, we need a driver. Who Who's going to drive this thing? And, and they said, well, what about Rusty Wallace? And my dad said, well, what about Davey Allison? And they said, well, I don't know. I mean, he's unproven. What What do you want to do? I said, look, I've been around him as Arca stuff, as Bush stuff, Noah's dad. Let's let's um let's bring Davey on. So they said, okay, let's do it. How and close did the Rusty deal come? It, it was just it was, a con- just it was close. Just I mean, they were. It was kind of you know this one side. <clears throat> these people wanted Rusty, and my dad wanted Davey, and it was um. But but fortunately. You know, it turned out turned yeah. out good, and and um, that year, you know, they didn't run the full season, but they won, set on five poles, and won two races that year. A Talladega in May being the first one. Um, you know, Bobby was in the fence as we've all seen many, many times, um, and then um, and then Dover. But how did he? How so? How did he broker purchase yeah. of the team? How so he- so he got through the '87 season into '88, going pretty well, and then J.T. Lundy and Harry Lanier said, we're, "We don't want to do this anymore." Wow, Lanier has been like the, the I, Lanier team, the Lanier name. I yeah. mean, why why did he all of a sudden decide that? So I don't know if it was financial, what, yeah. but they were. You know, J.T. was in the horse racing, Calumet Farms, and and Harry was in the coal mining. Okay. and I think they might have just had their run of that, and and decided it was time. And Lauren and I talk about it a lot because Lauren right. Rainier was there. And uh, and and was part of that whole thing with Davey and and all that stuff. Great guy, but um, but they they said, hey, look, why don't you? We're going to sell a team. And and my dad said, oh, okay, what am I going to do now? And so basically, my dad went to Davey and said, man, this deal's falling apart. What do you think? Davey looked at my dad and said, look, Robert. He said, you can you can do this. You deserve it, and you're ready for it. Mm. My dad went home, talked to my mom. Uh, she said, let's do it. They sold the house that they were in, which they. They, uh, he paid for everything, so he paid for his house, sold it, used that money to put the down payment on the team, moved in an apartment, and uh, put everything on the line, and that was October 10th of 1988. So he, he owed on the team yep. as they went into the first year with him as the owner. Absolutely, yeah. How long do you think it took him to pay off the team? Well, he never borrowed any money his whole life, and it was over one million. He could tell you to the penny, right? Yeah. But uh, he his house, he had about three hundred thousand owed the rest of it. Go to Daytona, nineteen eighty nine, very first race, crash and burn, like burn the car oh. to the ground. Like, oh man, what am I? What do I got myself <laughs> into? Yeah. Here? I think he got into it, with Jeff Bodine or something. There's just some good stuff on. Davey called Bodine a conehead, I think. Yeah. Um, but anyway, they uh, and then you know we just kept working, and then we finally won our first race at Talladega. Um, Talladega again, right? My favorite racetrack. I know you love that place too. <laughs> um, but uh, won that race, and then it just kind of started started taking off. But it, you know, it when they first started, you know, they they did have a little bit of money. I think a sponsorship back then was about a million dollars a year, uh, and earnings weren't that much but yeah. they finally i mean he just dug in he my dad drove the truck built the engines jacked the car yeah cool changed yeah. tires i mean he was my hero i mean yeah. it, i remember as a kid he when he worked at Digar, he brought the the hauler and parked it in front of our house 
And I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever. Yeah. You know? But uh, but he was just man. He he loved just working. Man, he wanted to work. He wanted to be able to do everything. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, but I, and I would imagine though he probably had that paid off in a year, two years, maybe. It's, I it's mean, especially pretty, when you guys start. Uh, you know, Davey was uh, started lighting the world on fire, didn't he? Yeah, it was pretty quick. I mean, it didn't take long. But um, but 1990, you know, in the spring of that year, Texaco was putting a lot of pressure on him. They said, "Hey, look, Robert, we want you to sell the team to Carl Haas. Um, you know, he's got his IndyCar teams yeah. and all this stuff, and and so they were putting a lot of pressure on him." We went to Bristol, and um, I was getting ready to graduate, but I was still, you know, went there on the pit crew, and um, and we're on the back stretch. I mean, we were. It was kind of a bad deal, but we, so we were running okay. And um, last pit, the caution came out, and and my dad's a crew chief, and he looked at us, said, "You want pit or stay out?" And we all said, "Stay out, stay out, don't don't pit." And we ended up winning that race, and that right there was kind of a turning point for us. If we wouldn't have won that race, he might have sold the team, and we wouldn't be sitting here talking today. Wow, Bristol, nineteen ninety, nineteen ninety, yeah, beat Mark Martin, um, and um, that was a really big moment for our team. Celebrate and save at Ashley's Anniversary Sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Jack and your dad uh, partnered up, but I know that Jack was reluctant to do so. First off, I guess, you know, what was the purpose of the partnership? Why did y'all decide to to team up with Roush? Well, we – so, first of all, we, you know, everybody built their own engines, like I said. And then after we won the championship with DJ, all the four teams, except for Jack, said, why don't you just build our engines, lease them to us? So we started an engine business, my dad and I. We had eight Ford teams including our own stuff. And then Jack had his five cars. And uh, so we said, let's let's build a new shop up here in Mooresville. And my dad had this vision, you know, and he bought this shop and up at it, 75,000 square feet, world-class engine shop. Never been done, heard of, even thought of, right? But we're engine guys, so he built this shop. Well, by the time 2003 rolls around, a lot of those guys are gone. Travis Carter, Kmart left. Dodge came, took a bunch All of teams. All the four teams. Yeah. So we were sitting there with basically our two cars and some road race programs inside this incredible facility in 2003. And we knew Jack may be moving down. And so finally, well, we called forward Dan Davis, and he said, yeah, why don't you guys get together? I'll back it. I'll put more money behind it for R&D and uh, put your program together. Well, before we went and talked to Jack, you know, my dad and Jack didn't like each other. Why? Because they both wanted to be the best Ford guy out there. They they really didn't like each other. How far did that go back, though? Like, when did they start getting rocked? Well, from the beginning? It's really Dale. It's Dale's fault, to be honest with you. Oh, good. All this is <laughs> who's? Your dad's fault. Okay. Because early 90s, he was dominating plate races, right? And so Ford said, why don't you guys work together? You you and Jack get together and compare engines and, and figure out you know what's going on. So I was just out of college. We drove our engine up there, took two engines up there in a van, me and Larry Wallace and Devin Barbie, and uh, we spent three days there, and we ran our engine, we ran Jack's engine, we swapped parts. I mean, we were there till 3 o'clock. It's the first time I ever met Jack, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, back there at 7 o'clock the next morning. And so 
all right, this is this is pretty cool. So we went home, and we all went to Talladega, and we qualified third, and Jack qualified like thirty third. <laughs> and so, needless to say, it wasn't a very good start. That's... And he felt cheated or slighted by the fact that we didn't share everything with him, and and so that was kind of one piece. And then you know, it was always a competition between Jack and my dad. You know, my dad won the championship first in '99, and Jack later in '03, and. But they were they just they wanted was, to beat each other. I remember um, Mark was going to win the championship and put a put one of y'all's engines in his car at Atlanta. Yep, and it blew up. Nope, it didn't blow up. No, what happened? It just didn't run good. It didn't run good. So did Jack get mad about that? He was he wasn't happy with Mark about that. Oh, because Mark why? Mark kind of Mark asked for that to happen, didn't he? Mark said Mark I'll, drove that engine change, didn't he? You give me that engine, I'll win this championship. That's right. Oh wow. Yes. Well, Jack says. I'll give you that engine, but you're going to have to take their car, too. Oh, that's right. It was the whole thing. And so the car they picked was what we just ran at Phoenix, which was a terrible car for Atlanta, right? Yeah. And then so they put it in, and Robin and Steve Mill and all that group, and they, I mean, it wouldn't run. It, wiring was messed. I mean, it was just it was just a mess, right? Yeah. And so at the end of the day, it was an experiment went bad. Good. I mean, I know where Marco's coming from, but if he'd have put it in his car, I think it might have been a different story. But I built that engine. I mean, I built part of the engine. So as a kid, I'm like, oh, my God, you're kidding me. We're going to line up and put one of our engines in his car. Yeah. And um, But but it was just – they just wanted to beat each other. I mean, they were so competitive. Was uh, – to his first point, when you were talking about uh, when you all went and compared the engines and, and then ran – was it Talladega right yeah. after that? Was he right? Did you guys hold some stuff back? Well, so Larry Wallace had a pretty strong influence on our deal, and he didn't want to share the cylinder heads with Jack. And Jack and I talk about this all the time, you know, and we talk about that that moment. So he was somewhat right, yeah. Yeah, because I would agree with that, right? It's like, impossible. why would you? You'd yeah. compete against yeah. them. You wouldn't go give You're going, them everything. You were going over to their shop knowing that you had 50, at least 50 more than they had. Yeah. And what were they going to give you? That's right. That's right. <laughs> but – but when we walked in the shop, now this is crazy. So we had one dyno, one Superflow dyno. Roush into Jack's shop at like 25 dynos. Damn. Wow. And I'm thinking to myself, golly, how in the world can we even compete with that? I mean, it was buildings everywhere, machines, dynamometers. So right away, I was pretty, as an engineer, I was pretty fascinated with this guy, Jack Roush. I'm like, this is pretty cool. I mean, he was there doing stuff. And so... So although they didn't like each other, we knew that, you know, there could be something there in the future. When y'all sat down in the meeting, was was Jack and your dad there together? So at in the meeting for the first No. No, okay. my I was there. My dad wasn't there. So your dad and Jack never were in the same space together. Not then. In terms of putting this together. No. And so now what we know of Roush race you know, racing engines and, and Yates, it's now even today, a firm partnership. So when we put the deal together, my dad and I, we were at Atlanta and um, at the end of 03, back when Atlanta was next to, I think we ran Atlanta, Rockingham, Homestead, something yeah. like that. And so we, my dad and I looked at us, all right, let's go, it's time to go talk to Jack. I'm like, all right. So we walked through the garage and my dad put his hand on Jack's shoulder. He said, hey, can we go meet at your motorhome and talk about this deal that it's kind of in the background and we haven't talked about it yet. He said, yep, meet me in my motorhome. And um, so we're all a little nervous because Jack's a pretty intimidating guy. You know, he's an engineer and smart guy. And 
Jack Roush. Yeah. And so we um we went in the motorhome and we're sitting there and he looked at my dad. And he said he said I don't like you. <laughs> he said but but I like Doug and I think he has a good future. And he said because of that I'm willing to do this deal with you. And that's exactly who Jack Roush is. <laughs> Hard to like. I mean, no. like, it's, I, I don't to know. The point. I, he's to the point. To the point. He's like, is that hey, right? I don't like you. Yep. I like this guy. I mean, oh, he would. So, he's absolutely the type of person well, that would sit in a room and say, did, <laughs> say that complete. <laughs> well, why did y'all get along? Be okay so well? with it. Yeah. Like, was he right about? You and him having a good relationship at least. Yeah, yeah. So he, so the next week at Rockingham, Kenseth is running for the championship, clinches the championship, and he said, "All right, bring your bring your stuff here, and we're we're gonna go back to Michigan, and fly back to Michigan, and we're gonna talk about putting our deal together and people and all that stuff." Like, all right. So they won the they won the deal, got in a plane with him. He's flying left seat by himself, and I'm in the back, and he already had his plane wreck. I'm like. Man, I really want this deal to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and so we got there and um got in a Roush Mustang, ripping down wet streets, drops me off the, the hotel room. He said, I got one thing to want to tell you before you get out of the car. So yes, sir. He said, I'm a nail straightener. I said, Oh, I know all about this. Yes, sir. I, I'm a nail straightener too. We we're gonna get along really good. And um that means he doesn't waste any money. He he saves and um but we went to the shop and started talking about the people um, that we're going to come with our program, which was a really awkward feeling for me because this group of guys just won the championship. And I've got to go tell half of them or more they're not going to be part of our program going forward. And uh, But anyway, that worked out okay. We brought 12 people down. And um, in the winter of 03 going into 04, we, man, we worked freaking seven days a week, slept on the couch, did whatever it took because our engines were so different. People said, well, why don't you just run Jack's engines in his car and Robert's engines in his car? I'm like, no, no, no. This is going to be a Roush 8's engine. Stick with me. And and they did. And and we um, one of my proudest moments ever is we went to Daytona 500, sat on the front row. Um, Biffle was on the pole with Jack, and Elliot was on that outside pole with my dad. And I've got this picture hanging up in the lobby, and I'm over here on the side looking at this thing saying, this is awesome. Yeah. This is freaking awesome. That was uh, 04? 04. You yeah. won, who won the race at? I won the race. So, uh, yeah, I remember something happened to Biffle when and, uh, he had to go to the back, and I got to line up with Elliot on the yep. front row to bring him to the green, and I was, uh, but I wasn't a pole sitter. Man, we, we made a lot it of had power. something happen. I forgot all about that. He had something yeah. where he had to do an adjustment or something. No, it was, the, en- tires it was the engine. Oh, he changed motors. Oh, yeah. No, oh. We, we, we made a lot of power, but, boy, we – it was a bit messy for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, we had a problem with uh, – we had to change the engine and, and start in the back. So let me ask you uh, – let us let me ask you this. So I want – we're going to eventually – you're going to eventually answer the question of what you're doing today. It isn't all motorsports. At what point in your life did you – there was a point, even back then in 04, where you were 100% – motor builder in nascar right at what point did you start to to evolve into more well and why, and why? yeah so uh, you know i've always been you know entrepreneurial trying things you know trying to make sure the business works and look around and you know you got a lot of guys with other outside things going on that help help the cause right and so you know we started a part store it was like all right let's we're selling used parts let's 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 start a retail retail store so Selling what? Everything, motorsports, anything and everything. Oh, okay. Engines, car parts. Okay. Drive helmets. What was it shoes. called? Uh, Roush Performance Products. Okay. 
Yep, started that. Did did Ford have any involvement with that, or is it like you you sold parts for everything? That was just our own deal. We had okay. we had everything, um, right. and um, we found the more parts we sold, the more money we lost. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was quite wow. the, quite the experience. Uh, retail is just a tough tough go, right? But um, but that led to some partnerships along the way that we have with UTI. That's right down the street with NASCAR Tech. It's one of our great partners and provide lots of great. We've hired over 150 of their students there. Um, comedic gaskets, you know, a lot of things that, that stuck. So we learned some things and, and, and got some people. We got out of that. Greg Frenelli, my buddy, uh, now has that place, SRI. That's where we used to be. So basically I, hand, I said, change the sign and I'll hand you the keys. <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, so it was working out well for him. But, but through that, we, you know, we built grassroots engines. We did a lot of road race engine programs. We are really proud to be part of uh, Ford's return to Lamar. The 50th mm. anniversary beat Ferrari, mm. uh, and the first time back with the Ford GT. So that that was a cool thing for us. But all along, we're building up this machining capability, right? Doing more parts, machining more parts, and uh, we said we should turn this into more. My dad and I always dreamt of having a, a company that built you know things for the defense, aerospace, space, and and so we kind of were on this mission, and um and and we had the equipment and, and the skill sets, and and so. Finally, when my dad, um, you know, he, he, after he passed, my mom put this building, East Barrel Race Shop, on the market. And um, in 2017, I bought that building, moved in there in 2018. And, and today we have uh, about 65 CNC machines uh, making parts for the defense industry um, and uh, space, aerospace, motorsports. We make all the next-gen uprights, shifters, oil tanks, stuff like that. So have about 125 employees there doing that. It's really cool. Something I'm really proud of. Yeah. Where, where is the shop? It's in the same park here. It's so you're building stuff for the military and for space in Mooresville, right? Just uh, a seven hour and away from where we're at right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We're open, you know, seven days a week, uh, four shifts. Um, I just got a letter uh, two weeks ago, and this is something made me really proud of, uh, you know, thanking our company and our employees for our involvement and, in the um, crisis or war in Ukraine, because some of our products go over there and um, and and have, and have helped in that call. So you know, there's you know, winning races is awesome. Yeah, that's what it's all about. But also helping and being part of something bigger. And we're making parts for SpaceX, uh, which is something also. Yeah, that's really yeah. cool. You know, we went out there and visited when we ran the clash, and you know, so it's it's just something that um, I think that fits really well with this area, this industry, these people, these skill sets, and we're proud of that. You know, Brad Kozlowski's uh, company, is he a is he doing similar, or is that similar to what y'all do in terms of building rocket parts and so forth? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's similar but different. He is additive manufacturing, so just printing, metal printing, like 3D printing, mm-hmm. and um, and then he does some of the machining as well. And, and we've collaborated on a couple things, or trying to collaborate on some things there as well, but a little bit different, the fact that he has more additive manufacturing, we have more just traditional CNC. Um, ours is automated. Uh, but um, yeah, interesting. Can you explain like a little bit what the parts are, that, especially in the space program? Like, what, what are you making for them? Yeah, so parts that go on the Raptor, the rocket engine. So uh-huh. we make some manifolds and some other brackets that go on there. Uh, we also oh. make parts that go on the Starlink satellites. Yeah, uh, something that um, there's tons of those things. So we're making some of those parts. Um, so yeah, it's just one just went up a day or two ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's um it's amazing what you know Elon Musk has done and just I think of him like I went to the shop and I what I saw is just a big old race shop 
You know, that looked like a fab shop and a machine shop, and it reminded me of a race shop. And I think what he's done is kind of like what we do as racers. Like, why won't that work? Why don't mm. we try this? You know, why does it have to be that way? Yeah. And and I think he challenged the norm and changed the whole uh, space industry, which is cool. And I think, to me, he'd make a hell of a racer. How do these contracts, like, I, I ha- are you in the middle of the contracts uh, negotiating? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, we have a team of people that do that. I mean, Jeff okay. Clark's on the sales side of that. Marianne, well, he would be perfect. Yeah, he could he could sell anything. and But he's on that team, Marion Malwin. And like I said, we have a staff of 125 employees there. And a lot of them came from the racing side. Of, like our lead engineer there was designed the current engine we're racing. And so it's just it's just a good way to, to give people opportunities and continue to grow. So something something really cool. And as you guys, you know, we're adding uh, – so that's about a 90,000-square-feet building we're in now. And we're adding another 55,000 square feet behind it to continue to grow. Man, how often do you get to the boat? Not often enough. Yeah. yeah. How well did they turn the boat back is what I want to know. Oh, like, like, well, is there any cleaning fees that we need to go ahead and settle <laughs> up right now? I saw some pictures. It looked like they had a good time. We did? But yeah, that's <laughs> it's awesome. Good. Did you leave their boat like you did Panama City back in 04? Uh-huh. Okay, good. I, I tell you what, if you hang out with Steve Latard, you're going to have a good <laughs> time. Figure, it don't matter. Did you figure out what where the water was coming from? In that, so, oh, you didn't know. Oh. <laughs> uh oh. He's looking at me like, what are you talking about? So am I. Like, what, 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 do you, what happened? Um, so, in the room that me and Amy were staying in, there was a, uh, there was a uh, air handler right. for the air conditioner that it, the captain thinks was leaking into yeah. the floor. Okay. And so, me and Amy got there, and it was a little bit of water, and every day there was more water. Wow. And, and, uh, just just wet carpet. Sorry about that. That makes it free. Why are you sorry? <laughs> I was like, man, we got. I want to. We got to fix this. Like you know, when you see something, you don't want, you don't want him to think that when you he, did it. No, but especially when he's like an air handler and he described it to me, I'm like, oh yeah. I mean, I know. I know to fix that. I work on those yeah. all the time. Yeah, I, I tell you what. And one thing I wanted to make sure we talked about is how fortunate we are to be part of NASCAR, mm-hmm. and and the and the opportunity that the NASCAR family. Uh, the France family has provided for all of us. I mean, I, I just can't thank Jim. Jim France is a man. Yeah, he is yeah. he is just awesome guy. I mean, back when I remember Bill Jr. used to sit outside to holler all the time. You could always talk to him, and sometimes he'd tell you things he didn't like. But Jim's that guy. And then Lisa and Ben and Brian. I mean, it's it's cool. And and the biggest part for me is that without NASCAR, I would have never got to know my dad. Mm. And I think about that all the time. That's, that's probably the, one of the reasons why I love it so much is because it provided an opportunity for him. My mom raised me until until she handed me off to my dad, you know, for my career in racing stuff. And but, but it is awesome, man. Yeah, no, I can agree with that. Um, it's provided a lot of us with a lot of joy and continues to to today. I mean, we are all sitting here because of that. That's absolutely the truth, man. But uh, yeah. Doug, it's been awesome. I've enjoyed conversating with you. I hope you enjoyed coming here today. And I know a lot of people that are listening to this podcast uh, have enjoyed your stories. Pretty amazing life that you've carved out for yourself. And from where we, you know, from where you started to to where you are today, I bet you imagine you never dreamed of having the opportunities and creating the opportunities you've created for yourself. So pretty incredible. And thanks for giving us some time today. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I mean, that's just um, I love what you're doing. This is the show to be on. I was, 
I was nervous. I sent Matthew, I think, my whole life story just to make sure. I, I was thinking about it for me, not for you guys, you know. But you think about all those times, those stories, uh, the things we've done, places we've been, people we've met, opportunities we've had, and the races we've won. I uh, just feel blessed to be part of this deal, and thank you for, for having me on. Appreciate you guys. Man. Thank you so much, Doug. Uh, I enjoyed it, man. Doug Yates on the Dale Jr. Download. You know, Mike, whether I've been in the garage, right, as a driver or in the studio as a member of the media, the biggest lesson I've learned over the years is that we are all better off with an ally, a friend, a partner. My favorite part of the download has always been the opportunity it gives me to connect with such a wide range of people. They love racing as much as I do, and it means so much to me that when we leave the guest segment, I leave it with a feeling that I can call each and every guest on the download a true ally. Thank you, Ally, for your continued support of the show and the entire Dirty Mo Media team. We are live on YouTube, so you guys know, for Ask Junior. Hey, everybody, it's uh, Dale Jr., and uh, this is the Ask Junior portion of the show. Uh, you guys sent your questions in to uh, uh, Xfinity Racing on Twitter. And Hannah's going to go through them and pick out her favorites and throw the rest in the trash. So here we go. <laughs> well, this first one comes from Caleb, and I actually really like this one. It says, when a crew chief or spotter says, pull those belts tight, how literal is that? I usually hear them say it three to four times per race. How tight can you actually get? <laughs> well, so it's um, you, you uh, it's a good to be reminded to tighten your belts. I know it sounds like, um, you know, it sounds like a pep talk, but when you're racing around the racetrack, especially at a banked racetrack, uh, maybe like Dover, especially you go, you know, at Dover, you're going down the front straightaway and you kind of drop off into the bottom of that corner. And when you land your body and everything kind of goes down in the seat and the, the longer you run as you're running lap after lap after lap of doing that, you kind of slide down in the seat and you, you get lower and lower and lower in the seat. And, a lot of drivers will put a little box, a fabricated box, uh, over by the clutch pedal to push with their left foot, to push themselves back up in the seat. And But anyhow, as you're running, uh, those belts, yeah, they won't be as tight because you're sliding down further and further in the seat and you need to you know, readjust them. A lot of times during the caution periods, I would loosen my belts and get myself back up in the 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 seating position where I started, get my ass back up in the back of the seat, and uh, then tighten all the belts back to kind of get back up. So I kind of, you know, while you want to be comfortable and down as low as possible, you also, you know, kind of want to see, you know, see see pretty far off the hood there. But, um, yeah, so, so, so hearing a guy say, yeah, tighten your belts, maybe, somebody, maybe some crew chiefs or spotters are saying that as a pep talk. But at the same time, you know, it's a it's a good practice to to uh, to make sure those belts are tight, and because you do move around the seat quite a bit. Um, this one's coming in from the chat. Actually, there's been a couple people that have asked about it. Um, a couple of them, maybe that actually met you at this Bojangles the other day. You got the chance to yeah. go and make biscuits. How <laughs> was that? So, um, there's a new Bojangles in Kannapolis. It's literally about three blocks from Mamaw's house, and. Um, they have a window in there where you can watch uh, the bis- the master biscuit makers make the biscuits. So you you know you hear 
uh, in the tagline and, and, and you hear companies say made fresh, made on site, made from scratch. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's really true at Bojangles and you can go there and watch them and they take the flour and the buttermilk and everything and start from, start with those ingredients and go from there. And it happens, it's, it, it's really a lot of work. They do hundreds, if not a couple thousands a day. And, uh, it's, you know, you're, you're just the, the master biscuit maker is just mask, you know, sitting there making when the morning crush comes for the breakfast, they're, they're grinding away making biscuits one after you know pan after pan after pan after pan and uh it's uh it's a lot of work i'll be honest with you i was really uh i was really surprised at it um at what goes into it the other thing that was nice was the attitude of, of everybody in the in the room you know, everybody back there in the kitchen uh everybody was it was a machine uh with specific parts with specific roles and everybody was in their place, in their station, with a smile, working away on a mission. And when I worked the window, uh, they had they have a process, right? And uh, you got to understand everything you're seeing on the screens. And and there's two lines in the drive-through, all right. And so there's uh, two people can order at the same time, and you don't know which one's going to pull ahead of the other, right? So you really kind of as you're what happens is, is basically you're standing at the window and you really don't know which order's coming first. That was kind of the confusing part because if two people are sitting there ordering, uh, you see the orders pop up on the screen, but then you don't know which car is in front of which. And so you got to pay attention to what's going on. You'll give somebody the wrong bag pretty easily, uh, but they got a great process. Anyways, I was I was glad to kind of go through that experience and know what that's all about. It gave me a new appreciation for everything going on back there. You walk up and you get your food and you take all that stuff for granted. And I'm becoming a bigger and bigger through this whole process. I'm becoming a bigger, bigger fan of Bojangles and the, and and the product they they make. So we have uh, <clears throat> they have a new chicken sandwich that I'm a big fan of, and we've had it in this room and we've ate it. We've had Bojangles come here and and bring some of those with us uh, with them when they when they unveiled that like a year ago. Yeah. The next one here, and this kind of comes from a conversation or a tweet that you. Sp- you sent out over the weekend oh. from Josh Briggs. It says, if you ever had the chance to lay blacktop down on Bristol, would you do the same at Dover? Oh yeah. You know, um, I think, you know, concrete, first off, everybody would agree. The last race at Dover Saturday and Sunday was awesome. So maybe I wouldn't be as eager and you, and, and, and I'm not as vocal, I guess, about paving that racetrack, but, I just know that when I race there, so concrete, when you when you put concrete down, you're you got to cut these grooves in it so it can expand and contract. I suppose in 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 weather uh, from hot to cold throughout the seasons, and so those joints that that creates, they if you have a deck uh, where the boards kind of bow up at the end, so where you cut a seam in that concrete around the racetrack over time that that seam kind of rises and so it creates a lip and if you drove down a concrete interstate you'll you know your car goes that's cuz that's 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 crossing those joists or those joints and um that's the way it feels when you race around there it's like under caution the car just kind of bucking as it's kind of 
going over these ridges, these rises in the joints of the concrete. And when they went there for IndyCar, they had to grind it. And it's really because they had to grind those, those humps or those peaks out of the track. And, uh, but, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I didn't enjoy that about racing there. I want it to be not per- perfectly smooth, but um, I just feel like that a- asphalt is what racetracks should be. You know, if it's not dirt, it should be asphalt. Concrete's really, I would even go as far to say they should try to pave Martinsville. <laughs> Take that concrete up and put pavement down. And, you know, with the technology we have today, it would probably be able to survive uh, what it goes through. And, um, it would, you know, they paved, they put concrete down at these tracks because at Bristol, at Dover, at Martinsville, because the cars were tearing up the, the asphalt in the heat of the day. And that was in the nineties, right? When asphalt, it's a little different these days and it's made differently. And I think the technology, it would be able to survive, but I don't know. That's just me. I don't think everybody shares my opinion. Everybody probably has no problem with Martinsville the way it is. And Dover is, uh, was such an amazing race. Why would you want to mess with it? But uh, I, if now going back to Bristol, I wouldn't only pave it. I would, I would reconfigure it to where it was. I would try to get back to where it was in the 80s as far as platform banking. They had like 36 degrees of banking, way more uh, than it has today. So I would, I would, well, not way more, but more. Uh, I would, um, I would reshape the corners to where it wasn't that progressive banking, and and you know make get you know. I would try my best to get it back to where it was. I'd even tear down half the grandstands. Even if I could sell more tickets, I wouldn't build more grandstands. I would just, I'd have people, <laughs> I'd have standing room only, right? Just really kind of get back to where that track used to look. I always thought it was cool when you could, over the over the turn three and four wall, uh, the cars are going by and you look out and there's that big hill of farmland. That was such a cool visual in the scoreboard on the in the middle of the turn with a top five on it visually i think it'd be so weird to see martinsville with asphalt just visually i 100 like, percent agree yeah and it's probably maybe it doesn't maybe it's not a good idea to put asphalt down there but i, I just don't know till you never try. was a concrete <laughs> never was a concrete fan never really liked it uh don't love it at martinsville but i do love the racetrack i just love short tracks and it's kind of all we have in terms of short track racing um the lot oh we've got two more um, one of these is from Keith Ricky. It says, I found an unopened bottle of Coke in my <laughs> attic from 1996 featuring Junior and his dad. Do I drink it? No. <laughs> Heck no. That's on it. Yeah. I don't, I don't think they're really genuinely asking us if that's what they need to do, right? Yeah. Just, I, hope I hope not. not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and this last one here comes from Tim Heatherly. He said, now that they're so realistic, do you think you would ever gotten your dad into a simulator? If yes, right. would he take it serious or turn damage off and wreck everyone in sight? Nah, he would. <laughs> I think um, you know. I think since simulators are so prevalent, I mean, uh, Chevrolet has their own. Dad would, without a doubt, try it. He would do it in a way where no one would know. Right? He would. He would. Uh, he would. You know, show up at nine o'clock at night when everybody was gone. And some get, you know, he'd he'd call ahead and had some guy be waiting there to unlock it and turn it on and and put him in there, and he would want to try it. He would want to do it, and not let anyone see him doing it. Now this is a guy that used to ride bicycles backwards on the handlebars, <laughs> uh, but he wouldn't want anybody. Wa- he wouldn't want anybody watching him drive a simulator. 
and then he would probably do it, never do it again, and get out and continue to complain about them <laughs> and what a waste of time they are. And now he would have some ammo. He'd have some experience to 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 fall back on to back to back up his his uh, negativity because he he thought he thought computers were a waste of time. He thought when I was playing NASCAR racing by Papyrus in the late nineties, that was a waste of time. And, uh, you know, he was, you know, he passed, when he passed away, we still weren't kind of super, super dependent on laptops, engineering, all the SIM stuff hadn't come out, come out yet. And now he would probably warmed up to it quite a bit these days, had he been around to see it become such a big part of the sport. But I think in terms of driving a simulator, whether it even is the 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 big one at Pratt and Miller that Chevrolet has, he probably would frown. Uh, he'd probably clown it a little bit. <laughs> well, that is it for this yeah. week's Ask Junior questions. Man, we really appreciate everybody uh, supporting the Ask Junior segment of the show and sending in their questions to Xfinity Racing, and um, appreciate everything that Xfinity does for our our podcast and our family here at Dirty Mode Media Xfinity X Five. It's more than just fast, Mike. It's right. it's also reliable, powerful, and secure, meaning everyone can do more of what they love with faster internet. I'm a customer and uh, can vouch for everything I'm saying here to be true. And listen, you can keep your team connected with that Wi-Fi coverage. It delivers the speed your devices need so your crew can stay in the fast lane on race day. And just as a reminder, send your Ask Junior questions to at Xfinity Racing on Twitter every week. We will answer the best ones. Thank you, Xfinity. Proud premier partner of NASCAR. All right, man, that was a fun show. We uh, we had some great stories with Doug, and I knew, uh, you know, I've always kind of wanted to get to know him better. Uh, he's been involved in the sport for so long, and I feel like that I've never had much conversation with the guy. I knew his dad a little bit better than I knew Doug, but pretty awesome to uh, – to be able to sit down and spend some time with him. Super enjoyable. And to be honest with you, I didn't know his dad at all. So it was just fun hearing about his dad and uh, in, in, in the whole family. So uh, good job recommending him for the show. I, yeah. I enjoyed that. Well, I appreciate it, man. Great open segment, or should I say dirty air. That's right. That's uh, right. And, um, yeah, good good ass junior stuff. Yeah. Some stuff. great stuff, man. All so, right, man. Everybody have a great week. Episode 382 is in the books, and we'll see you next week. It's going to be a lot of fun on the Dale Jr. Download with our guest. Drum roll, please. Who is it? You don't have it? That should just be the end of the show. And just leave it like that. Leave it like a cliffhanger. Do it. Hell yeah. (laughs) Piss them off. Or you could say, yeah, you could play a jingle. You could play a jingle. Or you could say, yeah, you could play a jingle. Or you could say, yeah, you could play a jingle. It says, we're not going to tell you. We're not going to tell you. Thought that you were going to know the guest. No, you're not going to know the guest. You're going to have to wait. Wait. Just like everybody else. Wait. 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 Uh-uh. I'm majored in big beer. Wait. 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 Uh-uh. Either these big margaritas or big beer. Wait. Wait. That's what's great about podcasts. We're not gonna tell you. I thought you were gonna know the guest. No, you're not gonna know the guest. Oh no! It's like.
That'll be in the uh, yeah. open next week. No, that's the end. No, of, that's the end. That's no, the no. end of our show. You doing? No, no, no. That's going to be the end. He's going to work that in. He's going to turn that into. I'm going to turn into a song. Yeah. You know me. I get fucking weird. That's you at your best.